What could be better than an expert guest on Baseball HQ Radio? How about two expert guests? I'll talk with Howard Bender and Glenn Colton from Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and Fantasy Alarm. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 19th. It's show number 18 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have two feature expert interviews with Howard Bender and Glenn Colton, both from Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and Fantasy Alarm. Howard Bender will talk about being aggressive in the free agent market early, working on the radio with a former big league general manager, and more... Glenn Colton will discuss some of his early roster moves, his smart in-season management system, the intersection of fantasy and gambling with the new gambling laws in the U.S., and both of our experts will have their boons and banes for the balance of the season. We'll also have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols will have player news from the National League, including updates on the bullpens in Philadelphia and Milwaukee. And Jock Thompson will have news from the American League, including Blake Snell, Kristen Stewart, and other newsmakers. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about the new juice ball and how fantasy owners might profit from the sudden spike in home runs. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Detroit outfielder Daz Cameron. And in our weekend pitcher matchups report, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Boston left-hander David Price in Tampa to face the Rays right-hander Tyler Glasnow on Sunday and another big weekend matchup. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the early results from my Pitcher Net Pro research. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? A Blue Jays pitcher carved out a little niche in the record books this week. And you know what that means. We gotta talk some baseball. Well, Thomas Pannone is not a household name and probably not on many people's fantasy rosters. He's one of those serviceable setup guys in the Toronto Blue Jays bullpen, but as common as guys like that are, Pannone had a really uncommon experience among Major League pitchers in the fifth inning of Toronto's game against Tampa on Sunday. When Pannone struck out Daniel Robertson to close the inning, he became the 89th pitcher in Major League history to record an immaculate inning, striking out the side on nine pitches. Pannone's immaculate inning was the 95th in Major League history since John Clarkson of the Boston Bean Eaters took just nine pitches to fan Jim Fogarty, Sam Thompson, and Sid Farrar of the Philadelphia Quakers way back on June the 4th of 1889. Pannone's feat was the second in this season. Milwaukee's Josh Hader did it on March 30th in the ninth inning against St. Louis. Four pitchers in big league history have thrown two immaculate innings, Lefty Grove, Randy Johnson, Nolan Ryan, and Max Scherzer. And one other pitcher has three immaculate innings. I'll let you take a guess who, and I'll tell you a little later in the show. Here's a hint. He has more in common with Grove and Johnson than he has with Ryan and Scherzer. 
Meanwhile, 18 hitters have been victims in immaculate innings more than once, and one of them was Daniel Robertson, the very same guy Thomas Pannone whiffed to crown his achievement for the record books. In the first inning of this Friday full edition, our expert interview number one with Howard Bender from Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and Fantasy Alarm. Howard, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's a first time for you. Well, thanks for having me, Patrick. Yeah, I was uh, I was beginning to get a little insecure about myself that nobody ever asked me. Well, it takes it takes time to work your way through uh, the various experts and guys, but I'm really glad to have you uh, aboard. Uh, how long have you been in the fantasy baseball business, and how long have you been playing the game? Oh, well, I mean, I've been playing the game for, uh, you know, 30-plus years. Yeah, wow, 30-plus years already. Playing the game, starting off stratomatic like, you know, a lot of people and then gravitated towards uh, rotisserie. Um, in the industry, full-time, probably about 10 or 12 years, part-time before that. I think I started in like the mid to late 90s, just kind of during that internet boom when I started seeing, uh, you know, a lot of the articles being written on a, on a number of the sites and I just I ended up starting up my own blog and uh, freelancing from there. So, yeah, it's been since the late 90s that I've actually been, you know, active in the industry. Um, is you're, you're the vice president of content at Fantasy Alarm. Is Fantasy Alarm a site that you founded? Uh, no, actually, um, Fantasy Alarm had been going for a few years before I ended up meeting those guys. I met uh, Jeff Manns and Ryan Hallam were the... Uh, were two of the main guys for Fantasy Alarm. When I met them in San Francisco at an FSTA event, that, uh, believe it or not, I was freelancing around a bunch of different sites. I was writing over at Fangraphs. I was writing over at Rotowire. <clears throat> and then I was, I was actually bartending at the event, the FSTA event that year in 2010, I believe it was. And... I ended up meeting uh, Jeff and Ryan, and they uh, we talked for a while during the event, and they ended up uh, bringing me on as a as a contributing writer for uh, for Fantasy Alarm at that point. And then it's just uh, you know I've grown through the industry, you know, with them. They were the first ones to offer me a full time gig in the industry, and uh, my loyalty lies there. So the trick for all you listeners who aspire to a full-time job in the fantasy baseball analysis industry, start start slinging beers and uh, slinging drinks at the guys who are movers and shakers, and there you go. Yeah, it really kind of turned out to be that way. It was very funny because the event planner who booked the event knew that this was something that I was doing and uh, and and trying to make a you know more of a, a job. So. You know, she put me on there, and I ended up. Yeah, I walked out of there with a big old stack of business cards and uh, and at least free, uh, you know, five or six uh, job offers to freelance. Well, that's great, and it certainly uh, reinforces the importance of networking and getting yourself out there and those kind of things. Uh, First Pitch Arizona is an ideal opportunity. I don't. It, it costs a bit of money to go there, and you got to stay in a hotel and stuff like that. But if you aspire to get into the business, uh, there's a place where you're going to have you know what, 60 or 70 people who are in the business and including decision makers, if you can uh, get your foot in the door that way, that's how you go about it. Absolutely. And, you know, just be 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 open to talking to anyone and everyone. There are tons of guys in this industry 
um, who have been in there for a while who are more than happy to, you know, help give people a leg up or at least give them uh, some insights as to the best way to get started. It really is a very uh, kind-hearted industry, I found. You know, there's money involved and there's competition involved, but gosh, uh, you know, people just are very open-minded, very open-hearted, as you said. It's terrific. Uh, you're also a, uh, a regular host at Sirius XM on the Fantasy Sports Channel 89 on on the XM side. I'm not sure what it is on the Sirius side. Maybe you can tell me. But uh, uh, how did you get started with them? Um, it's uh, on Sirius. It's two ten on XM. It's eighty seven. Eighty seven. Um, you know, it was funny. I was uh, I was working for RotoWire for a number of years, and uh, and I was a regular. I, I was covering a number of teams for them. I was covering uh, the Kansas City Royals. I was covering the uh, San Francisco Forty ers I was covering uh, the Denver Nuggets for them. I was doing everything for for them. And, uh, and Derek Van Riper started bringing me on as a regular guest every Wednesday with him and Jeff Erickson. Uh, we talked Royals, but then it all just kind of gravitated towards, you know, towards baseball in general. And after, I, I'd say I was probably, you know, just serving as a regular guest uh, on that show and then just appearing all over the channel for about a year and a half. Uh, when I just, you know, I just kept pushing and pushing to the uh, the program director uh, that I wanted to, that I, that I felt like I could handle my own show and was really looking for a job. And uh, it, it took a little while for him to uh, to kind of fit me in, but I started doing uh, Sunday nights uh, from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern uh, on a regular basis. And from there, uh, it just, again, it grew. I was filling in as a host throughout the time. And then... Uh, a couple of years ago was when uh, it was my turn to take the reins over at the Fantasy Alarm Show, and that's been uh, where I've been sitting. Well, most of your writing uh, on FantasyAlarm.com these days is about DFS. I'm curious how much you play the daily game. Are you one of these guys who's dropping five grand a night with 300 lineups, or are you playing a little more casually than that? <laughs> um, I play more casually than that. I don't want to say that I... I, I hate the DFS game, but I've always been—I've always been a much more seasonal player. I, you know, it's just—it's always been my thing uh, for seasonal leagues. It's—it's uh, the—it's just the direction that the industry has taken uh, with the increase in daily roster moves and seasonal. It obviously pays to to also stay on top of the DFS game, and so you know when you're when you're looking for subscribers and you're charging subscribers uh for dfs content which is you know what every site does uh you, you want to try and put your best foot forward there so i always make sure that i stay uh heavily involved for the subscribers and you know and then i trickle out some some seasonal content as well um but yeah the focus is definitely on running the site and uh and then just kind of giving giving into the uh, to to what the subscribers want the most. Well, when you write your reports, you do a, a regular feature on fantasyalarm.com where you're basically doing previews of those days slates, pitching and hitting side. Uh, what metrics, what factors are you using to make your recommendations? Oh, well, you know, you you want me to give the secret sauce away? All right, I can do that. Sure. Um, for you know, I mean, for pitchers, I, I'm definitely the where I start is uh, weighted on base average splits, 
versus lefties and versus righties. Uh, K per nine, swinging strike rate. Uh, that's really where I kind of get started. And then from there, uh, once I identify the, the pitchers I want to I wanna focus on based on those metrics, then I start tilting towards fielding independent percent, uh, you know, percentage, uh, XFIP. Um, and, and I start looking at, at those factors and finding out, you know, which guys are, uh, or, you know, just doing the, the best job as a, as a pitcher, not just completely reliant uh, on the defense behind them. But then, obviously, uh, then I also look at the opposing lineup, and I look at what, you know, those those uh, those teams have been doing as far as their weighted on base average as a team versus lefties versus righties, and, and then, you know, what they've also done uh, over the last seven days. For hitters, again, it's also it's, it's more WOBA splits, uh, OPS splits are always a, a good one for me. I like to identify, uh, you know, the hitters who are doing that, and then I match them up with the pitchers of, on the slate, and I and I go to the breakdowns and see how they do, how each hitter does against that particular pitcher. If this pitcher is a uh, a two pitch pitcher, um, and he's just you know fastball slider, well then I look to see how these hitters do against the individual pitches before I start. Uh, moving on from other guys. I think, yeah, I think that answers it. You said that you're looking, uh, at least in part, at how guys have been doing in the last seven days, and that rings a, an alarm in my in my head about sm- small sample sizes and short run narratives and kind of that, those kind of things. How much weight do you put on sort of recent performance and knowing what we know about the variability of it? Well, I always like to, when I'm playing the DFS game, I always like to identify the guys who are on the hot streaks. You obviously have to look and see what they're doing. I mean, were they going up against a, a team that has just in general weak pitching and that's, you know, helping them out? Or were they actually going up against a legit uh, rotation? You know, did they get hot while they were facing the Astros or did they get hot while they were facing the Marlins? Um, and, and I look at that. Um, you know, when I look at just what a team does um, over the last seven days, because that's really where I use it the most, um, it's just to kind of get a feel for, you know, what is this team's weighted on base average on the entire season? What is this team's weighted on base average against lefties? And then what is this team's weighted on base average over the last seven days? Um, have they seen more lefties than righties over these last seven days? Um, so, I mean, I just, I wouldn't say I put too much of an em- emphasis on it because it is a small sample size, but to me, it's a really good indicator to see whether or not a team, uh, is overperforming based on just matchup or whether it's a team that's steadily just improving off of a slow start from the season. Like, for example, you take a look at, uh, the Mariners, they got off to this immensely hot start this season. Uh, batting wise, and they were just they were plugging every pitcher that they faced. They've since cooled down, and we just saw the Cleveland rotation really just kind of put them down. Now I look at Seattle over the last cup last seven days, and the numbers are, are you know not so great. But I have to also understand that who they faced at that point in time, right there. So you know if they did if they struggled and it was against a, a subpar rotation as opposed to the Cleveland rotation, well, then you have to kind of figure that they're coming back down to earth 
a little bit more as a, as a team as a whole. Well, Howard, you mentioned you prefer and play in season-long formats as well. How many leagues do you typically play, and how many are you playing this year? Oh, Patrick, I keep trying to pare down the number of leagues I play in every single year, and it never seems to happen that way. Um, I'm playing in 12 leagues again this year. i got two NL-onlys, one AL-only, one Dynasty, and then eight redraft leagues. So, I mean, it is... Um, it is. It is a. It, it's. It's almost a full time job trying to keep up with all of these. Uh, all of these leagues, and I'll tell you, every Sunday morning, uh, waivers. It's really. I, I. I have to get up early before my wife gets up, uh, because I know that I'm going to need some time just to look at waivers for my different leagues before I have to start my day. Yeah, I only play in three leagues, and that's a real challenge, uh, trying to figure out, A, who do you have on all your rosters, and you've got way more rosters to consider than I do. B, what, are the, what is the free agent population in each of the leagues separately? And then C, how, how can you profit by replacing some of A with some of B? And, boy, there's a lot of moving parts there to keep track of, that's for sure. Uh, have you found, especially in, in uh, seasonal formats that have daily moves, that your disciplines and uh, and methods that you're using in your DFS analysis have some kind of overlap into those kind of leagues uh, at the seasonal level. Yeah, definitely. Studying up for DFS obviously helps with the decision-making for leagues with daily roster moves. Uh, plus, when you're on waivers, you have a, a solid idea of, you know, who the, who the streakier players are, uh, you know, week in, week out. Weekly leagues, you tend to to look more big picture, uh, and sometimes you need to break it down even further there for the daily league. So to, to sit there and know day in, day out um, what, the, what the lineups are that I can expect from a team based on whether or not they're facing a lot of lefties or a lot of righties, um, it's always key for the, the leagues that have daily roster moves because at least I know when I start my day, it's like automatic. I'm like, oh, okay. This team's facing a lefty tonight. I can take out Jesse Winker from my lineup, and I can put in Fran Mill Reyes and maybe get a little bit of extra power, that kind of way. And sometimes, based on platoons, uh, you may actually avoid having a guy who's just sitting the whole game, maybe gets a pinch hit late in when they switch pitchers later on. Uh, what about your seasonal leagues, Howard, that, uh, that don't play uh, daily? A lot of seasonal leagues play weekly moves. Can you still apply those DFS disciplines? You can. It's more of a week-to-week sort of thing. Like I love, you know, Jesse Winker is like my favorite, um, my favorite example here, uh, only because you know he sits predominantly against left-handed pitching. So, you know, knowing that, um, you know, I'll look at the week ahead and in leagues where I know that I can't make daily roster moves. I'll have to look at what the upcoming schedule is for everybody. So if Jesse Winker. Uh, let's say, like like now, he you know if the, if the Reds are on a West Coast trip and they're facing the Dodgers and the Padres, uh, you know I know he's going to see predominantly you know the team the Reds are going to see predominantly left-handed starters. Um, so I'll pull Jesse Winker out of my lineup and I'll throw in somebody uh, who I expect to see uh, more at bats. Now, am I gonna am I gonna miss out on the uh, the home run that he hit against uh, off of Chris Paddock yesterday? Yeah, I'll, I'll miss that home run, but uh, I'd rather maximize the at-bats and, and go at it that way. So, 
Um, it's just, it's really, it's, you know, for weekly leagues, the DFS, the daily aspect, uh, has just really taught me to just, uh, you know, identify and study schedules, uh, upcoming matchups uh, a lot more. This is a bit out of left field, but uh, do you concern yourself with teams that are making uh, long uh, travel uh, arrangements, uh, especially going from the West Coast to the East Coast? Is that first few games a little problematic for you because of the jet lag and those kind of things that have been fairly well studied and fairly well talked about, that uh, moving West to East can be a little more debilitating than uh, moving East to West, for example, or just debilitating in general? Maybe you don't want a guy in your lineup the first game or two because they're getting their feet under them? Yeah, you know what? Exactly. Um, when it comes to uh, when, when you're playing DFS, when, when, when there's a game at Coors, the first game of the series, I usually avoid the visiting team. I'll, I'll play you know, some Rockies there, but I'll avoid the visiting team for that first game only because I know that they're getting adjusted to the, uh, you know, to the altitude and, and to the, the, the area there, whether there's travel or not. Um, when I'm drafting, I'll focus on on you know on on East Coast hitters uh, a lot more than I'm going to focus on on West Coast hitters just because of the travel time. They've done all those studies of travel time for uh, guys who play for the Mariners as opposed to a guy who plays for the Phillies. And you know, I mean, it's just you know, these guys. It's it's all about their routine. Like that's. You know, one of the reasons I, I rarely, uh, almost never play uh, a DFS slate during the daytime is because these guys have been conditioned to perform at night. And when they have to play the night game and then the day game the right afterwards, um, you have to expect there's going to be a certain amount of their routine that's been thrown off. And I tend to avoid that because I just, I you know, baseball players are creatures of habit. So... You have to take into consideration travel time, uh, jet lag, uh, day and night games, things like that that always, uh, you know, always occur. Like a guy who, uh, who joins the Cubs uh, in the offseason, he's used to playing all these, you know, all these night games, and then all of a sudden at Wrigley they're all about the day game, especially for the first several months of the season. So, yeah, it's definitely stuff you've got to you know, incorporate into your, uh, into your thinking. Yeah, I think so too. And the, and one of the reasons is back when we you and I started, I, I was a early '90s guy into in a fantasy as well. And I worked in the newspaper business, so I had a real information advantage. And I subscribed to Baseball HQ, which not a lot of guys knew about, and certainly I wasn't going to tell them. And so there was this big information advantage you could get from fairly basic things like uh, you know the the uh, most up to date stats, which most of the guys in the league were only seeing once a week in USA Today. But I could see them every day because I had access to a wire service. And gradually, those kind of advantages are slipping away. And and the the advantages that we can get through information, Howard, it seems to me, are more and more at the margins, at the very edges of of you know these kinds of considerations, and. You know, 20 years ago, nobody would have cared about the, these kind of things or even thought to think about them because you were more concerned with who got six home runs last week. That's you know that was the that was the big consideration. And now all of a sudden we're thinking, well, has this guy got a good pillow? You know, does the does the hotel have nice mattresses? And these kind of considerations. You mentioned uh, the travel time, Seattle versus Philadelphia. I actually looked at it one year, and I think the Seattle Mariners, in the course of their year, had. 40,000 flying miles and Philadelphia had like 16,000 or something like that. That's a huge difference. 
it's, it's it's amazing the differential that you you see in that. You know, it's also it's kind of funny you bring that up. One of the first articles I ever wrote for the uh, the fantasy baseball guide, Peter Kreitzer, uh, Rotoman's uh, work, was a piece that I did uh, on home road splits for players who uh, are, are new parents, and I used C.J. Wilson as the example there because C.J. Wilson's wife had a baby uh, right before the season started. And, you know, there he was pitching for Texas, and you just, you assume uh, that, you know, that, that his, his road splits and, you know, you, you, you just, you assume that his, his splits would be a little different. Maybe he was pitching for the Angels at that point. Either way, he, I, I noticed that his, uh, his road splits were significantly better, and it had nothing to do with ballpark or anything like that. It had everything to do, and he even had, gave an interview where he said, when he's on the road, when he's at home, he wants to be with the baby, he wants to take care of the baby, and he wants to help his wife out as much as possible. Um, and then when he's traveling, he's in the hotel, and he's got, you know, he goes to bed early, calls his wife, he asks how the baby is, and he goes to sleep, and he's perfectly fine for that. So, you know, it's just it's very funny when you look at uh, certain things that, that can affect ball players. Uh, on a regular basis. So if you have a ball player who tells you that he just has a that he's got a new baby at home at the start of the season, I'm avoiding him completely when he's playing on the uh, at home as opposed to on the road. Yeah, we sometimes look at these stats that we have access to and we start to think of the players as automatons or robots of some kind and we forget that they have lives and the, that those lives are affected by things that have nothing to do with baseball. Uh, on a more somber note, remember when uh, Frank Thomas had a real terrible year and, and, and at the end of the year we found out he was going through a very acrimonious divorce which has to weigh on a guy's mind and you know, you're asking somebody to you know, discern a curveball from a fastball that's going 90 miles an hour and, and, and meanwhile in the back of his mind is lawyers' meetings, you know, custody disputes, all of this kind of stuff. It it had to have affected his focus and ability, and we didn't even know about it. And it's a real important thing to consider, not just in that regard, but in the regards that you talked about. Yeah, and I did the exact same thing. Uh, I guess it was one one of the one of the early years of Pablo Sandoval in San Francisco. Living out here, I heard about the story that his uh, his mother's house caught fire and they lost everything in the fire and she was completely displaced and uh, he was taking on the responsibility of bringing family in and taking care of everybody and it completely weighed on his mind uh, 100% because he just he, he was very much uh, like Vladimir Guerrero in that sense where you know where he went his mom had to be you know there and taken care of. And when he was sweating the whole, you know, her house is on fire and she's lost everything, it really weighed on him and you, you saw his numbers suffer. Yeah, and then there's a, a story that happens a lot, which is guys who run into visa problems and there's uh, all kinds of anxiety going on with lawyers and the government and all these kind of things just to get the guy into the country to play and that's got to be a little problematic as well. Something else you said that struck me about uh players acclimatizing to the rare air in Denver and the whole idea of day games versus night games because of routine. There's a there's a lighting difference between day games and night games as well, and I wonder how much players are accustomed, their eyesight is accustomed to seeing the ball under the artificial light versus the different frequency of light in day games and shadows and those kind of things 
which seems to me would give the pitcher a real advantage uh, because the the hitter is so conditioned to hit under these particular lighting circumstances that in day games are completely different. Yeah, 100%. There's, you know, and obviously, and then there's also things like um, the different ballparks and the different batter's eyes that they that they have out in the outfield. And uh, and the color, I think it was, uh, it was Paul Goldschmidt who gave an interview uh, back in 2015. Uh, you know, he was having all that success in Miller Park, and he immediately cited the batter's eye and the coloring there. He thought that it was, you know, he saw the be- the ball better there than he did even at home at Chase Field. So, you know, there's so many different nuances to the game and to players' routines and stuff like that that, yeah, you know, it's... um. As, as much as I love diving into stats and numbers, if you don't know the story behind those numbers, you're missing uh, way too much information. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Howard Bender from Fantasy Alarm and Sirius XM. And Howard, uh, you mentioned that you play in one American League league. I happen to know that's the Tout Wars League because that's my league. And I noticed uh, in Tout American League, you were very aggressive in fab bidding this year early in the season. And if the first transaction period, you spent 199 out of your 1,000 units, uh, picked up guys like Adam Simber and Ryan Buckter and Aaron Brooks, 116 there. March 31st period, which is just a few days later, you dropped Buckter and spent another 81 getting Ian Kennedy. The week after that, uh, you reacquired Ryan Buckter and a couple of other guys for 93. And then this last week, 25 on Hanser Alberto, some money on uh, Richard Lovelady. Uh, you've spent more than half your units and we're not even through April how much of your aggressive approach Howard is your general philosophy on fab and how much was due to the particular circumstances in this league it was all due to particular circumstances in this league my AL tout team Patrick has just been a, a disaster I mean, all right first of all we can we, we can go back to uh, to Luis Severino uh, and and the old price enforcing error that happens during an auction uh, when you turn around you just say nineteen figuring it's going to go up more and then all of a sudden you hear nothing but crickets and then Todd Zola says go and go and gone and you just got Luis Severino who's expected to miss a month for nineteen dollars and that's a pretty significant amount of your budget uh, in, especially in an AL only league so. I got tagged with that one. Then I lost Matt Olson uh, in the Japan series, and that was another one of my big bids. And um, <laughs> it just it, it just started to snowball from there. Then I I lost Ronald Guzman. Uh, I lost a couple of the fill-in guys that I you know infielders that I uh, that I had. Um, I lost Mike Clevenger, uh, and he was you know a, a big part. So Clevenger, Severino, and Olson uh, were three of my biggest. Uh, you know, priciest guys that I ended up going after in the draft um, and just like, completely got thumped on that. And then you know better than anyone here, and you know, when you're looking at AL Tout, I mean, once the draft is over and the reserve rounds are finished, that player pool is disgustingly thin. So you kind of, if you need a, a body to replace and you think that there are other people who are dealing with other, you know, injuries at, at certain spots, you kind of have to be a little bit more aggressive than you'd like to be uh, to make that happen. This It's funny, this exact same thing happened to me in NL Labor, my first year doing NL-only labor, uh, and I was over-aggressive doing it, you know, picking up free agents there, and, you know, and I tried to recover, but it never really, really amounted to anything. 
Then the following year in NL-only labor, um, I didn't get hit with the injury bug early, and then I was able to stay nice and conservative with my bids until it was time to, you know, push all my chips in on Juan Soto. So, you know, when I look at, at the AL-only league here, yeah, I mean, this has just been, this has been more reactionary to just getting thumped and beaten up and trying not to fall too far behind uh, in any of the categories so that hopefully when some of my guys do come back, then, you know, I do well. But, I mean, listen, if you, uh, you want to trade and help me out here, I am all ears, my friend. I am 100% all ears because it doesn't look like I'm even going to get my pitching staff back until the second half of the season. Yeah, if at all, there's quite a bit of uncertainty about both Severino and Mike Clevenger. Uh, the last I heard, Clevenger's six weeks to eight weeks, and uh, there's some real concern about this back issue that he's got. But I'm curious about your take on Luis Severino and some other pitchers who have these uncertain medium-term situations. You were allowed to DL him in Tout Wars because the rules allow an unlimited DL, so it's not it's not really a problem for you. But in leagues like NFBC, the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, there is no DL, and owners have to use relatively scarce reserve slots if they want to DL a player. In those kind of circumstances, Howard, how do you think owners should calculate when it's time to cut bait on a Luis Severino or even a Mike Clevenger on the expectation that you're just not going to get them back for enough time in the second half or at all. Yeah, that is, that, that's always a killer there. It's always a killer there. And I actually had a very similar discussion as far as, uh, you know, yesterday as far as how long do you hold a guy like Craig Kimbrell for? If you drafted him, he doesn't have a job, uh, and he's just eating a bench spot for you there. Do you expect him back? And at what point do you expect him back? And at what level do you expect him back? Um, I, I think for a guy like Clevenger and a guy like Severino, I'm probably being more pig-headed and stubborn than anything else, that I don't want to drop these guys so that all of a sudden, uh, you know, somebody else turns around uh, and picks them up in the second half of the season, and I end up, you know, because I had to go so heavy early on with my fab bidding, that if I let these guys go, then all of a sudden I'm not going to have enough money to get them when they come back. Um, if I do believe that they are going to be helpful when they come back. So I'm probably going to be more stubborn with, uh, with some of those higher-end guys, especially like Severino and Clevenger. But if I'm talking about, you know, if you're talking about a guy like, uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, of somebody who's been banged up and sitting there that's just more on the average side, like a, like a Jimmy Nelson, I would say. Like if it's somebody like that, uh, then if I need the roster spot, I'll just I'll cut bait and, and just kind of you know take my losses there. Well, you mentioned trading, and uh, I wonder again, and circumstances kind of force your hand a little bit in this. But when it comes to trading, how soon is too soon? Absent any kind of big injury that you have to address, I've always been. Uh, I, I would say early on in my fantasy career. I was I was a big trader and I was I was wheeling and dealing at all time. You know, the draft ended and I was sitting there immediately starting to, you know, sift through and find different ways to improve my team. As I've gotten older and as I've gotten more experience in the industry and in the game of fantasy itself, um, I tend to be a lot more conservative on the trade front. If I do the research and I and I and I have a guy who I think is going to play at a certain level. 
during the season, well, then I want to I see how he does throughout in the entire month of April. I'm not going to panic at a, at a two-week slow start. I'm not going to sit here and, and sweat a guy who I expect to, to finish out the season at 25 home runs and a 300 average. If he's batting 210 right now and he's only got one home run, I expect you know the, the turnaround to happen. So, you know, I'll give it. I'll give it that first full month. Uh, you know, starters get you know good like three or four starts under their belt, and you see if there's start to start improvement. If they're if they've uh, if they've begun cold, and hitters the same way. You know, I'll just I'll just leave them in for April. Um, you know, maybe I'll make a couple of waiver adjustments to kind of park a guy on the bench for a little while and not have him just completely kill me. But I'd, I'm very reluctant to give up a guy in a trade uh, just because of a slow start when, I mean, we're not even out of April yet. When it comes to trading any time of the year, do you tend to be more of a trade proposer or a trade responder? Um, later on in the year, I become much more of a trade proposer. I'll throw out um, a number of different offers of the same players, uh, to a couple of different teams, and I'll see, you know, who, you know, where, where the talks go. Does somebody accept my first offer uh, like that? I'm always the listener in uh, in April and early May because I'm still sorting things out for my team. But as the season gets older and, and we get a uh, a little closer to the trade deadline, and I know that I need to make a move, whether it's to solidify my spot in the standings or to make a, a you know a significant jump then I'll just I'll start getting a little bit more aggressive. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Howard Bender from FantasyAlarm.com, SiriusXM. And, and Howard, on your SiriusXM show, you work with former GM Jim Bowden, and I'm wondering what it's like to interact regularly with a co-host who has such an extensive background in the real game. Ah, you know, it's it's um, it's been very interesting, you know. Working with Jim Bowden's been great, absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I feel like I've learned a ton and that I'm still learning, which is obviously what you need to do. You know, working with him has been great just because it gives you that insider's opinion of time and opportunity for some players as well as that kind of old-school look and feel evaluation. It's not just about the numbers. Like, he goes for the metrics as well, but he's so in tune with this guy's curveball and that guy's hot zone at the plate and it's it's incredibly impressive. His insights, you know, are, are are really strong with with player evaluations in in that way. His also his insights into the front offices have become ridiculously invaluable. We've actually run a series of podcasts in our draft guide over the last two years where Jim and I discuss every team's front office and how they handle prospects to. Uh, to how they handle trades closer to the deadline, which GMs are, are more aggressive on the trade front, which ones uh, are, are more likely to you know, kind of contain their, their, themselves and hold on to those prospects. So the insights are definitely huge. The real challenge, I think, was, was spinning it towards the fantasy realm. Uh, and I think I've helped Jim understand that the times where you need to look at a player like a real GM and the times that you need to look at a player as a, as a fantasy GM. So, you know, I feel like the relationship has been very back and forth with he and I where we're both kind of learning uh, just different viewpoints for, uh, you know, the respective games. I like listening to your show 
and uh, to Jim Bowden because I, I find that exact thing. I like the balance between you two guys that, that he knows about the real game and, and a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff that might not occur to somebody who hasn't had that experience, whereas you have this insight into how the actual mechanisms of the games work. Uh, on Wednesday, uh, you guys talked about the up-and-down season so far of Jake Arietta in Philadelphia. I thought this was a really interesting discussion. What was your guys' take on his potential to actually be a useful uh, fantasy contributor this year? Um, I feel like Jim might be a little higher on Arietta than I am. Like, you know, when we discussed it, we, we both agreed. You're never going to see the same Arietta that you saw uh, when he first joined the Cubs. He's older. The velocity isn't what it used to be. Um, but what, it's about watching a veteran pitcher accept that aspect of, about his game and learning to pitch differently. Uh, taking a different approach to hitters, uh, trying to be more of a thinker on the mound as opposed to somebody who just says, well, you know, I'm going to mix in my 94-mile-an-hour fastball and I'm going to, you know, fool him with my 86-mile-an-hour changeup. You know, it's definitely a different way to look at it. Like, Arietto, he won't ever be your ace again, but he's definitely somebody who's making the necessary adjustments in the in the latter half of his career to becoming a, a nice, reliable support guy, like a good like third or fourth starter on your team. I also enjoyed you guys talking uh, about Scott Kingery in Philadelphia. Jim said basically Kingery has got so much talent that he's just going to force his way into the lineup. The team will have to recognize that he's a better ball player than the other guys that they're currently using. Uh, how do you think owners should calibrate their expectations by counting on teams to do the smart thing the right thing? Because God knows we have enough experience of teams seeing talented guys and saying, I'm sticking with the experienced veteran anyway. Yeah, and that's that's definitely a, a huge thing. So so knowing Jim's relationship, not only to Gabe Kapler, but also to, to Philly's GM, Matt Klentak, um, is really kind of what, what helps with the insights with Kingery. You know, Jim says he'll push his way in uh, based on talent, but that's also because he knows that if Kingery does start to hit uh, and, and – shows consistent performance, not only is Kapler just going to be more inclined to keeping him in the lineup, but Klentek is going to put that kind of pressure on his manager to say, listen, you know, I'm going to start shopping around Cesar Hernandez, or I'm going to start shopping around Michael Franco, because you've got Kingery here, and, and you know, he's the future of our franchise, and, and therefore I'm going to start trying to make some moves here and help you elsewhere. So Jim's knowledge of, of all of that is, uh, is, is so invaluable. Um, you know, again, one of the things that we've discussed between fantasy GM and reality GM uh, is that talent is definitely one thing, but opportunity is another. If the cream's going to rise to the top, then Kingery should eventually outshine Franco or, or Hernandez. But until Kapler and, and Kleintak are ready to make that full change, he's going to stay a utility guy. The Odubel Herrera injury right now kind of keeps his value uh, relatively the same at this point because they've given him reps in the outfield and they could turn to him if Herrera's going to miss significant time. They could end up using him uh, a little bit more often in the outfield. So, you know, it's, it's that kind of a, a situation here where it's, it's not just about, you know, the talent level and pushing his way through. It is about, you know, what his opportunity is going to be and when the team is ready to accept the fact that uh, this kid needs to play every day. 
In a similar vein, you guys were talking about the Mets, and uh, particularly they have guys like J.D. Davis and Jeff O'Neill been doing pretty well. But mean, lurking in the background, you have Todd Frazier and Jed Lowry uh, coming back from injuries. And the question is, when they get back from injuries, are they going to immediately go back to being the starters and push Davis and O'Neill to the sidelines? Or are the Mets similarly going to look at the whole situation and say, you know what, we need to go with these young guys? Uh, how did that discussion go? Went really well. I think Jim and I are very much on the same page. He and I agree that the Brody Van Wagenen is doing some really great things for the Mets right now. He's got that win-now mentality, but he isn't so off the rails that he's willing to mortgage the future. But because it's about wins and losses, the guys playing well are the guys who should play regularly. Uh, you know, Jim and, 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 and I, we, we know, everybody knows, we know the ceilings for for Jed Lowry, and we know what Todd Frazier is capable of doing uh, when he's hot at the plate and when he's cold at the plate. Um, are they better than what McNeil is doing right now? If so, then they'll start eating into the at-bats, uh, and we might see a pullback from a guy like McNeil. But if they don't, you know, if McNeil continues to just be a, a solid performer there, there's really no reason to make that switch to Lowry or Frazier. Um, and we've just both kind of been of that mindset that this is where the Mets are right now. They know that they need to keep the best guys and the hottest guys on the field because they're competing against the Braves and the Nationals and the Phillies, and the NL East has turned into one of the toughest divisions out there right now, um, save for those, you know, the, the lowly Marlins. So I think that, that Van Wagenen has really um, changed the, the mentality of – the Mets overall, their organization, that, hey, we should be winning, we can be winning, we will be winning, and it doesn't matter if the guy is a 14-year veteran or if the guy is a 14-day veteran, you know, player. The guy who's, who's going to give us the best opportunity to win, that's the guy who's going to stay in the lineup. Yeah, and you'd almost think that given the value of young players in the salary structure that the, the teams really have very significant incentives to try to make sure that their young guys, if they think that they have the potential, they need to see them on the field and get them moving along in their careers so that they can be contributors all during that three- to six-year span when their salaries are relatively restrained or compressed by the CBA versus a guy like Jed Lowry, who's, you know, he's an established veteran, but that's a fairly big ticket for a guy who's often hurt and, uh, you know, a good player when he's on the field, but not sometimes uh, on the field as much as you'd like. I think that's a, a really interesting thing. And have you and Jim ever discussed the relationship between general managers or the front office and the field managers as insofar as who has the final say how do they make the decisions who's playing who's not playing how much can the front office lean on the manager and say you may like Jed Lowry but we need you to play Jeff O'Neill and that's that you got to do that does that ever come up or has it ever come up yeah it comes up all the time it's one of the it's one of the main points that we talk about when we do the uh, the draft guide and we do the front office insights and that's the question. If a team goes out and they pick up a uh, you know a relatively high-priced free agent, when they're paying a significant amount of salary there, um, you know ownership is like, well, I got to get my money's worth here, and that spills over to the GM. And I, if the GM and, and ownership are at odds uh, with that aspect, then uh, then it becomes a little bit more confusing. And then you're you know you're you're basically you're forcing the hand of the manager uh, to play a guy like uh, you know listen. 
do we really think that Chris Davis of the Orioles needs to be playing right now? No, he definitely doesn't. But the problem is, is that the Angelos family is like, we've got X amount of dollars invested in this guy. We don't intend to win the World Series this year. So you know what? Chuck that guy out onto the field every single game, unless he's hurt or dead, we're going to get our money's worth here. And there are a number of organizations, uh, you know, that tend to do that and say that, you know, the guy who I'm paying the biggest amount for, that's the guy who better be on the field there, whether, you know, whether we're winning or losing. You know, you look at a guy like Matt Kemp and what Matt Kemp's making over there in, in Cincinnati, and it was a very, very touchy situation going from spring training into the regular season when they finally said that Kemp was going to be more of a fourth outfielder because ownership was really pushing for him to be the main starter because of how much they're paying him uh, to, to play for the team. So, I mean, it's a case-by-case basis, and it's one of the things that we definitely talk about on regularly uh, as far as, you know, is the manager's hand being forced? And as a result of that, um, do, you, do you, not, you just choose not to invest in some of the younger players on that team for fear that they'll just either be sent down or the, the ownership's like, listen, we're, we're paying these guys this much, uh, as opposed to the uh, you know the, the young rookie who's making you know a, you know a, an eighth of his his salary, um, and so that kid can wait. One of my favorite features on uh, the Fantasy Alarm Show on Sirius XM. Uh, it's four to six weekdays, right? Two ten and eighty seven Sirius and XM. I really like the love letters. Uh, the, these are little, uh, basically, rants or uh, opinion pieces you guys throw out there. And, and uh, on a recent show, you had uh, a, a disagreement, you and Jim, I'll say, about the uh, how the the conventional wisdom that came in, we were using coming into the season about when to draft elite starters. Uh, some observers are looking at the situation saying, see, I was right. It's a mistake to take those elite starters early. And uh, other guys are disagreeing. And you and Jim disagreed. Uh, You said that anybody who's uh, saying that they were right all along about elite starters was just missing the bigger picture. And it's 100% true. I think they are. They're definitely missing the bigger picture. See, here's the thing. Like, Jim, Jim is a super competitive guy. And you you can't, you, you don't become a general manager in Major League Baseball unless you have a certain amount of competitiveness in you. Um... To, to always want to win. So when Jim sees himself at the bottom of the standings because Chris Sale can't find the strike zone, Jim's freaking out. Like, you know, and I know it. You know, and this is this is one of the things. Like Jim is the perfect guy to try and prey upon. Uh, you know, if, if 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 some of his guys are off to these cold starts, um, you know, me, I, I can accept the fact that I'm sitting there, you know, in the bottom, you know, bottom third of the standings in April because I know what my team's going to end up doing there. Um, you know, the whole thing with, with the, the starting pitching, people who are telling you right now that, that it was a mistake to draft starting pitching early, they're, they're cherry-picking names. You know, Sale, Granke, Clevenger, Nola, three starts out of Carlos Carrasco. Okay, yeah, terrible. But what about Scherzer, Garrett Cole, Trevor Bauer? These guys are working out so fine. Uh, you know, Snell was doing well, you know, prior to the dumb little injury here. So it's just an overreaction to a small handful of starts. So these people who, you know, who say that, you know, you wait on the starting pitching because look at these guys, they're so terrible. 
well, what are they doing with their pitch? What does their pitching look like right now? You know, like, you know, they, they, they choose to ignore, you know, these, these high-end stars, but, but who's on their team? Kyle Freeland, Jack Flaherty, uh, Nick Pavetta, Joey Lucchese. How about Eduardo Rodriguez? Like, these, these guys, if you, if you draft it, if you skip starting pitching for the first six or seven rounds of your, of your draft, Okay, then, then that mid-tier is where you're really kind of hunting for your starters, and this year's mid-tier guys, um, the majority of them are, are, are going the same route here. You've got some, you got a small handful of guys, like a, you know, I don't even know, like a Tyler Glasnow, who's doing really, really well, but for every one Glasnow, you've got, you know, five Pavettas out there. Um, and then for those guys who waited on the starting pitching, you know, what, what does their offense look like? Um, who's got Giancarlo Stanton or Charlie Blackman or Trey Turner, Starling Marte, Jose Ramirez? I mean, you know, imagine that those are your offensive weapons, and you just got prevented. I mean, to me, um, it's hysterical. So to sit there and say that you know the starting pitching has just been atrocious and you shouldn't have been you know invested in it. Sorry, I'm looking at at a number of industry leagues that I'm in, and those those people who who waited on the starting pitching. They're sitting there below me in the standings. So, you know, who's to say that they're right all of a sudden if they're just going to cherry-pick names? That's, you know, that's a problem. Yeah, I think any analysis of the the efficacy of of using your early picks on pitchers or hitters or you know closers or whatever it is has to wait until you have more data. I mean, it could be that one side is right, it could be that the other side is right. Personally, I believe that both sides can be right because it depends on which guys you grabbed in those slots. As you said, you know, if you if you grabbed Max Scherzer early, good for you. If you grabbed uh, Luis Severino early, bad for you. And it's impossible to say those kind of things ahead of time. I mean, I passed on Chris Sale in the Fantasy Baseball Invitational at pick 14 because I, I just thought, hey, you know, there's too much injury risk here. I, there's some things I didn't like, so I passed on him. And I took Charlie Blackman instead. So, like, out of the frying pan into the fire, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's why, you know, I mean, listen, it's the biggest cliche in fantasy sports that it's a marathon, not a sprint. But it's true. I'm not going to say who was right or who was wrong until I go through the entire season and I see who's performed well and who hasn't performed well. And if you know what, if, if it looks like the majority of high-end starting pitching failed to live up to the hype, well, then maybe I'll make that adjustment for next year. But you know, I'm certainly not going to overcorrect, uh, you know, midway through the first month of the season uh, because... You know, again, because my team's sitting close to the bottom of the standings in April. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Howard Bender from Fantasy Alarm and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. And uh, Howard, uh, every time I get a chance to talk to somebody who knows as much about the game as you do, I like to ask for some player names. These are guys you like or don't like for balance of the season. Uh, I call them Boons and Banes. Uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, giving us some insight in that regard, uh, we could start in the American League. Who's a hitter you think could be a boon for his owners for the rest of the year? Uh, you know, I'm really easily falling in love with Brandon Lau from uh, from the Rays. I love this kid's hit tool. I love this kid's makeup. Um, good lefty sitting in a nice prime spot in the order. Um, he can hit for power. His plate discipline seems to be uh, 
more impressive than you would think for a youngster, for a rookie. So I'm looking at Brandon Lau, knowing that the you know the team locked him up uh, on a on a long term deal here. Um, I'm looking at him as being one of your 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 more stable second baseman who you're going to want to have uh, with power and a, and a little splash. Yeah, one of the things I like is when good organizations extend guys early. It's happening more and more, but I think they're the Rays are so smart, and if they're willing to 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 throw in early on a guy, uh, I think that's a very positive sign. He's batting three hundred with five home runs right now, a couple of bags. Yeah, I'm really sorry. I actually looked at Brandon Lau and didn't do anything about it. Now I'm kicking myself. Uh, how about in the National League? Who's a boon hitter for you? Um, you know, I'm kind of digging on Kiki Hernandez. It's it's kind of funny. This is the first time that Hernandez is really getting that full-time opportunity. We've seen what he can do as a utility guy. Um, and I, I honestly believe that this is a legit 20-home run bat. I think that he can hit for the power. I think he can hit for average. Um, and I love, love the multi-position eligibility. He's all over the place here, infield and outfield. Um, and, you know, and, and again, if we're talking about a time where everybody's concerned that the ball is juiced, well, a 20-home run bat like Kike Hernandez could turn into a 25-home run bat. And, and if he continues to perform well um, as a regular contributor, I, I think he's going to be a, a, a surprising name at the top of a lot of leaderboards. Kike Hernandez also hitting exactly 300 like Brandon Lau, so he's a good choice. Uh, that Positional uh, versatility, Howard, uh, a lot of people seem to think that it's really, really important in only leagues because of the shallowness of the replacement pool, but not so important in mixed leagues. I think that it's equally important in both, don't you? I think it's incredibly important in both, absolutely. Absolutely. Over to the mound, uh, who's an American League pitcher you think could be a boon for his owners? Um, you know, it's kind of a tie right now for me. Uh, you know, I love what Colin McHugh is doing. We kind of expected him to, to take that next step forward. Uh, the pitch mix is, is strong. The command is solid. Obviously, you know, pitching for the Astros, it's pitching in a, in a winning environment. Um, so I think that, you know, here's a guy who people were able to grab fairly late in their drafts um, who's going to give you your, some really solid return value. So, I mean, McHugh is definitely my favorite Boone AL pitcher, but Marcus Stroman's really coming up as a, as a very close second right now because here's a guy who we all thought had the tools uh, for years and injuries were a problem for him and his command was a problem for him, and he seems to have really settled in as he's gotten older. And I think that, you know, if, he's, uh, if his breaking stuff is working, he's got command of it. I think Stroman's going to finally be the, the guy we thought he was going to be a few years ago. And actually was a few years ago. He had a, a really good fantasy season a couple of years back. Uh, are you concerned at all that uh, you have an extreme ground ball pitcher like Stroman playing in an artificial turf field with some questionable sort of guys with the mitt standing there behind him. Uh, they've already demoted Lourdes Gurriel, who seemed to have forgotten how to throw the ball. and uh, they, they are kind of mixing and matching and casting around, trying to figure out who they're going to put at the infield defensively. Uh, does that concern you at all with a guy like Stroman? Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. you got a nice, good, solid ground ball pitcher and the defense behind him is, uh, is blah, then, yeah, it's definitely it's, it's easily a concern. Um, you know, for the same token, while it makes me worry about a guy like Stroman, 
you know, it then turns around for me on the daily fantasy side uh, to see, you know, a little bit more interest in a guy like Trevor Cahill, who's an extreme ground ball catcher who has, you know, one of the best defenses behind him in the Angels infield there. So, yeah, you know, you have to take that stuff into consideration uh, overall. I just I love Stroman's skill set. I really do. And, and, I, I, and I kind of feel like once, once the Blue Jays, uh, you know, get themselves set and squared away and they start bringing up all those youngsters that we expect to see uh, from the Blue Jays, you know, when we get our Vladimir Guerrero Jr., when we get our Bo Bichette, um, I, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, the defense is obviously going to improve behind him a little bit more for that second half. And in the National League, who's a pitcher you think could be a boon? I love me some Chris Archer. I'm not going to lie. I think that he has gotten over the issues of, you know, the, the, the latter years in Tampa Bay um, with the perpetual, you know, when we talked about this earlier, you and I, uh, with the fact that guys have other things weighing on their mind. I mean, how'd you like to sit there for two years pitching for an organization uh, knowing that you could be traded any day you walk into the ballpark when the manager calls you to the office? So I think that was kind of an issue for him, and then there was the adjustment period into the National League and the style over there. I think this year is the year Chris Archery returns with the strikeouts, um, and I think that you know that, that Pittsburgh starts to turn themselves around a little bit more, uh, and he becomes the more complete guy. Howard Bender's Boons, Brandon Lau of Tampa, Kike Hernandez of Los Angeles, Colin McHugh of Houston, and Marcus Stroman in Toronto, and Chris Archer in Pittsburgh. Uh, on to the Baines, Howard, again to the American League. Who's a hitter you think is going to be a Bane for his owners? You know, and it kind of hurts me to say it here, but I've, I've kind of given up on Jonathan Scope. I uh, was a huge fan of Scope, and I saw some really nice growth from him. Uh, two years ago, I thought, okay, this is this is great, and I looked into his, his numbers and his improvements that he made at the plate, uh, and last year was just, it was just, it was terrible. It was awful. It was just not what I had hoped. Uh, and then the, the move over to Minnesota, I thought maybe that would help him a little bit, but you know, I, I'm thinking maybe I was a little bit, you know, overzealous in my evaluation of his hit tool. Um, and I think that he's just going to be, you know, your barely average kind of guy. You were hoping for some power in the middle infield, um, but he's really not going to do too much for you. Saddens me. And in the National League, who's a hitter who could be a bane? Oh, Buster Posey. We stopped going after you know, high-end catchers just based on their names. Buster Posey has never been the same player since the leg break. We already know that. Um, and even if you want to say, well, he's you know, he's going to get up from behind the plate, he's going to see more at-bats, he's going to be at first base. He's just he's not generating the power that he used to generate, um, and he's not hitting for the batting average that you or, or the on-base percentage that you thought you were going to get from Buster Posey. So, you know, here's a guy where... Everybody was all in on Gary Sanchez and JT Real Muto this year. And when you said who's number three, there were a lot of people who were still clinging on to Buster Posey. And I think that, you know, that the time is the time is out for uh, for him. And, and I think we can all kind of move on. Big warning sign here, 290 on base percentage. This is a guy who's had a full season on base percentages of 400 in the past. Uh, 110 points of on base percentage is 
more than a fluke. I think you might be right about that. And unfortunately, I have a share of Buster Posey in one of my leagues. Uh, over to the mound again, back to the American League. Who's a pitcher who could be a bane? I'm a little worried about Yusei Kikuchi. I was I was kind of high on him to to start the season here, but what I've seen from Kikuchi so far, I mean, he's got good stuff, but hey, here's a guy who pitches to a you know to a lot of contact, and you know he doesn't have that swing and miss stuff that you were kind of that you were hoping he was going to bring to the table uh, coming over from Japan, and so you know here we are. Guys who pitch to a lot of contact run a, a much greater risk of you know, getting hit harder. And if we're worried about the juiced ball, then you know this is going to be a situation where Takuchi is a guy who, again, also because you know he comes over from Japan, he's not used to pitching uh, on the regular schedule that MLB pitchers are. So I think here's a guy who will get burned every so often pitching to a lot of contact and who could tire out. Uh, fairly quickly in the second half of the season. If it's any consolation to Kikuchi owners, a little later on in the show I'll be talking about my, uh, uh, in Master Notes, about my net pro evaluation that I do of pitchers, which is percentage of outcomes by uh, all their batters faced. And Kikuchi's actually in the top of the table as far as how many good outcomes he gets versus how many good out, uh, bad outcomes he gets. He's plus 30 percentage points on those measures and uh, maybe a bit reassuring, but I'm with you in the to the extent as I don't like the very low strikeout rate, especially in the modern game. And uh, anybody who pitches the contact with a juiced ball is definitely somebody you have to at least be a little bit worried about. Uh, and finally, Howard, who's a National League pitcher who could be a bane? Um, you know, I think we all drank the Kool-Aid on Miles Michaelis a little too quickly there. And, you know, he came over from the KBO last year, and he, and he pitched beautifully. Um, here's another guy who, you know, moderate swing and miss stuff, but um, the movement isn't what I thought it was going to be, and the pitch mix is uh, it, it, it's seemingly a, a little bit too predictable right now. I don't know if it's just something early on in the season. I don't know if he's focusing a little too you know, heavily on, on corner nibbling, but, you know, he just seems to be falling behind and counts a little bit more often and uh, and having to serve up the ball a little bit more over the plate than, uh, than he was doing last year. He, he got a lot of guys to fish outside the zone last year. Uh, he's not getting that as much right now, and I think that we've uh, just kind of exposed him as, uh, as somebody who, can be an average starter, but there's nothing uh, nothing super exciting about it uh, at the moment right now. Yeah, four starts and only 21 innings is also, to me, a big, huge, glaring uh, alarm, uh, red flag waving. That's really tough. Uh, Howard Bender's Baines, Jonathan Scope of Minnesota, Buster Posey of San Francisco, Yusei Kikuchi of Seattle, and Miles Michaelis of St. Louis. Boy, Howard, uh, I have to say, uh, given how tremendous this uh, conversation was, I'm sorry I didn't get you in sooner. I'll have to get you back a little later on. Where can listeners keep up with Howard Bender? Uh, you can hear me on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio Monday through Friday on the Fantasy Alarm Show. That's 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. You can also hear me doing Fantasy Sports Tonight every Sunday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. You can find all my written content and live streams over at FantasyAlarm.com. And, hey, you know what? If you're a New Yorker and you like the New York Post, well, I've got a, a seasonal column in the New York Post that comes out every Saturday. You're a multimedia guy like Howard Stern. 
I, I try to do it, you know. I'm, I, I think I'm just more of a more more of an, an attention seeker. I, I feel like that that might be my my biggest uh, my biggest flaw here. <laughs> Well, I'm really glad I was able to bring you to the attention of our listeners. It was fantastic, Howard. Thanks again. I'll talk to you again during the season. Patrick, thank you so much for having me on. All the best to you, and uh, let's work out that AL-only trade soon. Howard Bender is the Vice President for Content at FantasyAlarm.com, where he also writes for the site. He's also a co-host of the Fantasy Alarm Radio Show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. The 1-1, swing and a drive to deep left field. It's got a chance. Upton going back. It's going to go. Home run, Bartolo Colon. Repeating. Home run, Bartolo Colon. Seven-line army in right field might tear this ballpark down. Colon carried his bat with him until he was about 10 feet from first base. He's taking the slowest home run trot you've ever seen. He just got to Tim Tuffle, the third base coach. He is approaching home plate. He touches home plate with his first major league home run. And they are going to give him a silent treatment in the dugout. They have vacated. The Mets have left the building. Bartolo Colon is the loneliest man in San Diego as he reaches the Mets dugout after hitting a home run, and there's nobody there to greet him. And now here they come up the dugout steps. Wow. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in Atlanta, where closer, the right-handed relief pitcher, Erodas Vizcaino, had shoulder surgery on Wednesday of this week to repair labrum damage in his shoulder. Maybe gets rid of some scar tissue while they're in there. He's going to be out for the year either way. Phil Hertz covers the Braves for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. So where does Atlanta go from here with their bullpen? With Vizcaino out, the expectation is that A.J. Mentor will take over the closing duties in Atlanta. Uh, and we had shifted many of the saves to Mender a few days ago when, when Vizcaino hit the IL, uh, and are adding to that projection now that Mender's coming off a solid 2018. Uh, 3.78 XERA, 110 BPB, along with 15 saves. Uh, so far, 2019 has not been really kind to Mender. Entering play on uh, April 17th, he had made appearances with a 7.7 control, 7.09 XERA, minus 37 BPB. Obviously a small sample, but that could continue. Uh, we're, we're hoping, of course, that he will reverse that problem. Uh, if those issues continue, the Braves will likely go elsewhere. Dan Winkler had a couple of save chances in 2018, but uh, he struggled during the second half. Uh, Braves have a lot of young arms that might be tempted to try in high leverage situations. And, of course, former closer Craig Kimball is sitting out there waiting for a contract. Yeah, I heard about that on uh, SiriusXM. They were talking about Craig Kimbrell going back to Atlanta, and um, whoever was speaking seemed to know what he was talking about and said he hasn't heard any rumors at all that Atlanta would be looking at Craig Kimbrell. Of course, Atlanta is very cost-conscious, and Kimbrell seems to be bound and determined that he's going to get a sort of $20, $25 million a year contract. 
which a lot of teams now are not willing to pay for closers, even established ones, because the role is so determinative of value and you can make a closer as Oakland does every year or every other year just by taking a guy with decent skills and saying, you're the closer. And then they trade him when he starts getting valuable. And and I think that maybe Atlanta is going to look internally for these solutions. They may indeed, and they certainly have a a lot of arms that could wind up in that kind of role. Um, so they, they, if Minter does not straighten out very quickly, uh, there certainly is a possibility that they could look internally. But, of course, there are other people in the same division having problems. Lots of folks suddenly starting to have bullpen problems. Uh, the rumor out there is that Kimball has reduced his demand to now a three-year contract, uh, which would be certainly better than a five-year contract. And it may depend on whether, whether other folks in the same division want to head in the Craig Kimball direction, and that may wake some folks up. I signed A.J. Minter a week before he came back from the uh, injured list in my great fantasy baseball invitational team, and I thought I was being pretty smart. But it seems, uh, Nick, every reliever I sign flames out in a spectacular fashion. It's just a terrible list of guys. I could go through them all, but it's so dispiriting that I'm not going to. But one of them I signed as a a guy I drafted in that same uh, fantasy baseball invitational league was Philadelphia closer David Robertson. And uh, he's struggled in the early going now he's been sent to the il with what the team is calling right elbow soreness and of course that could be anything from you know you hit it on the edge of the fridge to tommy john surgery so a little bit hard to say but what's the prognosis in the bullpen right now for the aggressive win now phillies well you know robertson has struggled in his first few outings he, he seemed to turn a corner in the last four outings before he hit the il but in those he threw 4.2 innings allowed three hits a walk and no runs with five strikeouts, so it was beginning to look look a little better. Um, for now, the uh, Philadelphia team analysts at Baseball HQ have made significant reductions in his projected innings uh, and projected saves, moving him back to 30% of the remaining saves, and the big gainer is Sir Anthony Dominguez, who jumps up to 40% of the Philadelphia saves. Also, Hector Neris, who has some closing experience, moves up to 15%. They may lean on those guys. Uh, and, of course, the Craig Kimball ghost uh, haunts the, the, the Philadelphia pin as well. Certainly they haven't been shy about throwing the dollars around, uh, that's for sure. Uh, assuming that they stick with Dominguez and Neris, how do we like those two guys as high leverage relievers and potential closers? Uh, Dominguez is off to a shaky start, an ERA of 6 and a 1.33 whip, but an XERA of 3.47, he's piling up strikeouts at a dom rate of over 13 strikeouts per nine innings. He still walks a lot of guys. Uh, control ratio of 4.5 walks per nine, uh, and gets about 50% ground balls. A home run rate of 1.5 per nine, which could be a bit of a concern in uh, Philadelphia's park, but uh, that's based on one home run so far this season. So historically, he has no trouble with home runs. Uh, Neris had 26 saves in 2017, so he's not not overly challenged by the role. Uh, last few years, he his dom has fluctuated from 11 to 10 to 14. Uh, strikeouts per nine, and his ERAs have been uh, mid-threes, including last season when his actual ERA was over five. So short answer is both of these guys are capable of getting the job done in late innings. A lot will depend on how manager Gabe Stafford chooses to manage late inning matchups, and even Pat Nessie could vulture some saves. Uh, That pin may be a bit of a moving target uh, throughout the season. 
Yeah, and I think this is going to be the new reality, Nick, for bullpen management in fantasy baseball. More and more teams are going to realize that it should be more about matchups. It should be more about leverage in late innings starting in the seventh rather than just waiting with that one guy in the ninth because... It causes their salaries to increase in arbitration because the saves count still plays a pretty important role in arbitration decisions, which pushes the salary up for anybody who gets saves. And I think teams are getting smarter about that aspect of it. And I think teams are also getting smarter about the whole idea of there's no such thing as a closer. There's only a guy that we need in there to get crucial outs at crucial times. And we've been talking about this for years. I know people who play the various kinds of sim games, score sheet and what have you that allow them to uh, to uh, use whatever pitcher they want in those situations often will take a guy who's not a closer in the big leagues and make him their late inning guy, their ninth inning guy in their sim teams with great success. There's nothing magical about being a closer in the big leagues except in the minds of people who seem to be making the decisions, but they seem to all be leaving the game as younger people come in. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. We're seeing that you're, you're, you're correct. We're seeing more and more teams go to a, um, a non-established kind of closer, a matchup kind of situation. Uh, and so uh, I, and for exactly the reasons that you mentioned. So uh, certainly Philadelphia could be one of the teams that does this throughout this season. Well, one of the teams that started doing it uh, earlier was Milwaukee. They had their best relievers, clearly Josh Hader, but for the last couple of seasons, they have said, we're not going to use Josh Hader as a closer to get, you know, three late game outs with a three-run lead and the bottom of the order coming up. It's a waste of his talent and skill, and there's no need for us to do that. So they've been using other guys to get to, to get the saves. Uh, they recalled right-handed reliever Jeremy Jeffers from the aisle this week, and uh, also a relief pitcher named Aaron Wilkerson from Class AAA. Uh, to make room, they put Freddie Peralta, starting pitcher on the 10-day IL. He's got a right shoulder problem, and they sent relief pitcher Jake Patricka to Class A Wisconsin, which is quite a demotion. Uh, Tom Kephart covers the Brewers for playing time today. How does all of these moves affect the pitching situation in Milwaukee? Jeffers will likely be used initially in low-leverage situations before he resumes a high-leverage role, and Kurt earned his way into splitting saves with Josh Hader. Um, Jeffers has displayed career-best career skills 2018 of 138 BPV, 10.4 DOM, 3.3 command. Uh, 50% first-pitch strike rate suggests that his control could erode. Uh, Wilkerson will likely be used in low-leverage situations. He's had brief uh, major league exposure both 2017 and 2018. Uh, former starter Chase Anderson currently pitching relief as Peralta's likely rot- rotation replacement. Uh, Anderson is home-run prone, yielding the uh, National League leading 30 home runs in 2018 and 158 innings pitch spanning 30 starts. Career 4.39 XCRA tempers any enthusiasm you might have about Chase Anderson. Boy, when I see a guy who's home run prone pitching in Miller Park, uh, that's got to be really scary. Uh, Nick, I was again, I was. Isn't that really extremely scary? I was listening to another show on uh, SiriusXM, and they were talking about uh, streaming pitchers in in uh, seasonal fantasy play, but also in daily games. And one of the guys said, "You know, anytime you've got hitters going into Milwaukee." especially with the roof closed up there, you have to put them in because the home run rate is so high. And uh, if you've got a pitcher like Chase Anderson who's prone to giving up home runs and he's pitching in a park like that, goodness gracious, Nick, it seems like uh, if you had the uh, courage of your convictions and decided to start him at home, you're really rolling the dice, and the dice are hand grenades. 
Right, very definitely. I mean, it's uh, you know a, a guy like that in that park is just dynamite. Uh, so you better be hitting the ball out at a, a considerable rate uh, if you're going to have someone like Chase Anderson starting for you most of the time. Back to the Phillies, uh, they also demoted right-handed starter Nick Pavetta. Phil Hertz covers the Phillies for playing time today, so who's going to get Nick Pavetta's innings in the rotation? Uh, Pavetta's demotion was something of a surprise until you look at his performance so far in 2019. Over four starts, a 5.03 XERA, uh, a much worse real ERA at 8.35. Difficult to know how long that demotion will last, uh, because of a lot of variables involved, uh, how does he handle the demotion? How well does he pitch for the I Valley? How does his replacement do in the starting rotation? Uh, speaking of replacements, it appears that Jared Eikhoff gets the first shot at the open spot. He was just called up on April the 16th and pitched well that day in relief. Um, he was uh, in the Philly rotation for much of 2016 and 17, lost his spot after compiling a 4.96 XERA in 2017. Uh, they call him infielder Phil Gosselin. He appeared in the minors every year since he's appeared in the majors every year since 2012, but never accumulated more than 220 at bats and never has uh, had positive roto value. Uh, recall may be due to the fact that John Segura has a hamstring issue and it's possible to return to the minors as soon as Segura is ready to return. So the short answer here is whoever gets Pavetta's spot, do you need to take a look? Uh, Jared Eikhoff has, you know, he's been a serviceable sort of starter, but never a fantasy star. Right, that's, uh, that's the short answer. Take a look at Eikhoff to start with and look to see what happens after he uh, doesn't perform well in his first, uh, first couple of outings. In Atlanta, boy, they really started shuffling the deck. Uh, they sent down Kyle Wright and Sean Newcomb, two starting pitchers, and recalled Tuki Toussaint and Mike Soroka, a couple of their top uh, prospects. Alain DeLeonardis covers the National League East for Baseball HQ in the playing time tomorrow uh, columns, which are the ones that take the divisions and look ahead to try to figure out what's going on. So this is very timely. What's going to happen in the Atlanta rotation with all these moves, Nick? with the intention of adding him to the bullpen. He had a, a, a superb first outing in the bullpen, a very impressive outing. Um, pitched six innings on April the 13th, four hits, no earned runs, two walks, seven strikeouts in relief of Sean Newcomb, who had bombed with 1.3 innings, pitched five hits, four earned runs, two walks, and no strikeouts. And after that was rewarded with a spot in the rotation while Newcomb was sent down. Um, he has really filthy stuff. The, the uh, 2019 baseball forecaster said top prospect flashed electric stuff with 9.9 DOM, 25% hit rate in Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball. Uh, walks will be volatility, but three useful pitches. A ground ball lean and consistent ability to miss bats make him a worthy rookie gamble. Has the talent to stick in the rotation if he can limit the walks, and that's the key. Uh, Tucson will have to limit walks in order to stay in the rotation. In the meantime... Uh, Mike Soroka was, uh, is coming back from a shoulder injury. He was considered for a spot start. They thought we thought at first that he was not going to do that, uh, was going to stay at AAA Gwinnett, uh, but then was suddenly brought up for a spot start on Thursday night. Uh, has an advanced feel, 3.89 uh, XFIP, 1.9 walks per nine at uh, AA in 2017. Uh, could have a successful run in the rotation. Did all right in his first start. Uh, five innings pitch, four hits, one earned run, uh, six strikeouts, two walks. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, Tucson starts on Friday night. Uh, Soroka was Thursday night. It'll be interesting to see how things uh, happen after that, uh, after Tucson's uh, start. One of those things is going to be up in the air for a while, I think. 
Yeah, it seems like it. Uh, Atlanta's probably got some aspirations to do well, so they can't afford to sit around and waste a lot of time looking at guys who aren't getting the job done. But uh, again, they have these uh, salary cap constraints. I know they don't call it a salary cap, but that's what it is. Uh, the penalties for spending money are pretty severe, and, and they don't they seem to want to avoid that. So they're going to be mixing and matching here for a while. But I have to say, uh, I'm not... Sure, I go along with the idea that uh, Toussaint has this electric stuff. Nine strikeouts per nine in the minor leagues is not, you know, earth-shattering by any stretch. I mean, uh, it could be that that refers to when the scouts look at what he's throwing, that it seems to have good life and and good movement and stuff like that. But uh, so far, uh, at least, it it hasn't been super outstanding. I would gamble on both of these guys, frankly. Uh, I would certainly, uh, in an only league, you have to gamble on them. But even in a mixed league, I think if you can grab them and maybe put them on your reserve and see how they do the first start or two and then maybe stream them in against weaker opponents for a while, I think there could be some possibilities here for both uh, Toussaint and Soroka. Yeah, I think you're right about that, and you've got absolutely the right approach. Uh, Initially, they need to be streaming kinds of options. Uh, There's going to be some inconsistency from one start to another, undoubtedly with both of them. Uh, You've got, uh, as you said, with Tucson, we've got the the control issues, which could crop up at any time. With Soroka, we've got uh, got, uh, former injury issues, and you never know if that's completely healed. So uh, a uh, a lot of variables in place here. But I think if you can grab them and put them in a situation where you can stream them, that does make a lot of sense. And finally, Nick, uh, one of our favorite columns that we talk about a lot is the speculator column. Uh, Ryan Bloomfield writes that column at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, last week he did some what he called snap judgments on pitchers, uh, looking at guys who uh, you know have surprised so far this year and saying, yeah, I know it's a small sample size, but what the heck, let's think about it anyway. Uh, and uh, some of the names in the National League were pretty interesting amongst the pitchers. Uh, nobody more than uh, perennial question mark Luis Castillo of Cincinnati. Yeah, Luis Castillo was one of those guys that, that polarized a lot of people, I think, early on in the drafts. The, um, uh, of course, we expected Luis Castillo to break out last season. Uh, did, had a very poor first half last year, uh, and then a, a very dynamic second half that was, of course, sort of hidden in the total year stats because of, of what he'd done in the first, first half. He's looking like an ace early on. The difference from last year has been fastball effectiveness. Uh, mid-90s heater is missing more bats, a 9.7% swinging strike rate than it did last season when that swinging strike rate was 7.8. So couple that improved fastball with an elite changeup, and he's put together a very impressive uh, early package of skills. Uh, uh, 32 strikeouts to 13 walks, uh, 2.8 expected earn run average, 119 BPB through four starts, uh, and... Early combination of skills, a 16% swinging strike rate, 59% ground ball rate, a really sturdy foundation for a 26-year-old breakout. So uh, certainly if you've got him on your roster, you should keep riding him, not somebody I would sell high on at the moment, uh, because if you can keep that kind of thing up, he's going to have an electric season. I like Luis Castillo as well, Nick, but uh, here's my one cautionary note, and I seems to be seem to be the uh, negative guy on on the podcast this morning. But in four starts, uh, they've all been okay. A couple of them have been really good. He threw a PQS five against Miami, but who doesn't? Uh, PQS four against Milwaukee. That was a that's a tougher uh, road to hoe. That Milwaukee lineup's pretty strong, but his other two starts were PQS threes, which are just middle of the road type starts, and he only managed to get five innings in one 
start against uh, the Dodgers in L.A., uh, five and two-thirds against Pittsburgh at home in Cincinnati. I don't know, Nick. For me, doesn't it seem like a guy that you're saying is going to be an ace has to get deeper into games than five innings or five and two-thirds innings? I like the two seven-inning starts, but those two short starts, they kind of concern me because they cut down on win possibilities. They usually cut down a little bit on uh, on the, the confidence of the manager, as narrative as that is. I don't know. It seems like Luis Castillo is, to my way of defining an ace, not yet an ace. Yeah, I think you're right, uh, and you're absolutely right about needing to work later into starts. Uh, it's one of those situations where uh, I'm seeing this a lot of other pitchers. Guys throwing are all, not being very efficient with their pitches, throwing a lot of pitches uh, early on. Uh, guys are piling up huge pitch counts in four and five innings, and of course, when you get up to 80 pitches and 90 pitches in five innings, it's time to take the guy out. So uh, I'm seeing that more and more as I work on matchups. Uh, watching guys that are, are, are really not getting very deep in the ball games, and I think an ace has got to get deeper in uh, and give the bullpen some relief. In all of those four starts, Castillo was at or near 100 pitches, so it's not like they're bringing him out early to baby him along or anything like that. In that last five-inning start against uh, the Dodgers, that was a 98-pitch outing in five innings, and as you say, the uh, the the question of how many pitches it takes to get through innings is really important in, in today's game. And we know, Nick, that the teams are being very deliberate in telling their and coaching their, their hitters to try to foul balls off, try to run that pitch count up, do what you can. But the really successful pitchers uh, don't allow that to happen. If you stand there and try to foul things off, well, I'll strike you out or I'll, I'll make you ground out or something like that. And I think that's the dividing line between your true ace-level pitcher and a guy like Castillo who has sort of all of the tools but doesn't seem to ever be able to build a, a full uh, structure with them. You know what I mean? Right, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, when guys are – think about it Think about it this way. If you're going to strike out the side, how many pitches does it take, right? So, uh, you know, you should be able to get through an inning – in, in 10 or so pitches, but batters, as you say, are building up those pitch counts. They're fouling balls off. They're doing everything they can to spoil things, and we're seeing pitches come out of innings with 25 pitches in an inning or higher, uh, and certainly those guys are not going to be in the game very long. Well, just last week, I know it wasn't in the National League, but the uh, Toronto Blue Jays had an immaculate inning from a pitcher named Thomas Pannone. Uh, nine pitches, nine strikes, nine, three strikeouts. And, uh, you know, if he could do that, <laughs> I mean, he'd be the greatest pitcher in history. Of course, you can't do that every inning. But when I'm watching a game, especially one where my pitcher is, is throwing, Nick, one of the things I like to do is keep track of the pitch count versus the number of outs. And I find that if a, if a guy is consistently taking six or seven pitches per out, then I know he's going to have a short outing and I start to think about, you know, is this a guy I really want on my roster in the long term? And you have to look, in a, of course, in a longer frame of mind than just one start. But over time, if it's taking six pitches per out, that's a combination of not being able to get guys out in the first place quickly and also giving up a lot of base runners because then all the pitches that you've applied didn't get anybody out anyway, so they just get added on to the guys you did get out, and that raises that ratio. And I think if you look at it, I haven't done a full look at it uh, as far as all across baseball, but I think sort of 4.5, 4.6 pitches per out is where you need to be, and guys like uh, uh, Luis Castillo were talking about if you're taking 100 pitches to get 15 outs, that's 6.5 pitches per out, and that's not getting the job done at ace level. 
Right, absolutely. I think you're you're right on with that analysis, and uh, maybe we need to start doing a, a, doing a uh, some kind of a an analysis of that that we should add to the rest of what we're looking at in Baseball HQ. There's always something to look at, Nick. I appreciate you looking at the National League with us again this week, and we'll talk to you again in seven days' time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has long been our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League, BaseballHQ.com, Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, PD. How you doing? Doing great, doing great, uh, doing better than Blake Snell. He was apparently moving some furniture around his house and broke uh, the fourth toe on his right foot, or I think it was his right foot, something that obviously terrified more than a few fantasy owners when the news first came out, because if it had been a big toe, uh, it could have been real problematic. As it is, it's not such a big deal. And uh, Tyler Skaggs is out with a nagging ankle injury for the Angels, but it sounds like these are relatively minor, as it turns out, aren't they not? Yeah, um, these these are, like you said, these, these are relatively big names and their owners couldn't have been too happy when they heard the news, but it sounds like neither of them are expected to miss more than a start or two. Um, I wouldn't even try to guess what Tampa's going to do with uh, with Snell's couple of starts or one start, however many he misses. It looks like they projected both as bullpen games, um, which is what they do in Tampa Bay. In, uh, in Anaheim, it looks like Jaime Berea is going to replace Skaggs for a turn or two. Uh, maybe longer the way Chris Stratton is pitching. Berea outpitched some pretty dismal underlying metrics as a 2018 rookie, and he's capable of at least eating some innings. But unless he develops a little further, uh, he's more more back of the rotation ceiling and risk right now. Jock, this isn't the first time we've been talking about injuries this year that have occurred away from the field. And uh, when you hear about a guy who's making millions of dollars a year to pitch and uh, clearly has money to spare, you wouldn't think that uh, he's going to be moving his own furniture around his house for exactly this reason. I mean, you know, you're picking up a dresser or something like that and you drop it on your foot. I mean, it's as you said, it's only maybe six, seven days to a couple of starts. But it could have been way worse. He could have dropped it right on his instep or, you know, whatever he did. I don't know that he dropped a dresser, but he did something. And wouldn't you think, you know, you got millions of dollars, Blake, hire somebody. Yeah, sure. And, you know, we always shake our heads at some of these off-field injuries and ask, well, what, what were these guys thinking? You know, whether they're handling a knife or, you know, or whatever. Um, it's just, it's always very, very strange. I mean, it's just, I don't know, it's inexplicable, really. There was a guy who pitched for Detroit. I think it was Joel Zamaya, who lived near you. And the and the one of those early times in California where they were having the wildfires, he was moving boxes into or out of a truck or getting his house emptied out because it's in uh, in that area. And he fell down off the truck and he really hurt himself badly. Yeah, San Diego area. I remember Joel well, and I I do remember that injury. That was another one of those. The Tampa rotation, you mentioned Charlie Morton and Tyler Glasnow, and then you think that we're looking at a, a whole bunch of uh, starter type or opener type games. What about guys like uh, Yanni Chirinos and uh, Ryan Stanek? Is there any chance that they could actually get a start and go some innings, or are, they, are you pretty sure they're going to be going with the uh, you know, two or three innings and then turn the ball over? Yeah, I you know, that's been Tampa's MO. I mean, I would hate to try to outguess them right now. Both of those guys are capable of going multiple innings, but I don't I don't see either of them getting into the rotation longer term um at least in the over the near term. I mean, why why fix what isn't broke? Tampa Bay's been playing pretty good now, so um it's going to be interesting to see what they do here.
Yeah, that's, they have been playing well, that's for sure. In Detroit, rookie Kristen Stewart-Jock was a big favorite amongst the uh, touts and experts who were looking for sleepers as we came into the season. He started off very slowly and then started to pick things up. He's actually doing real well the last uh, six or seven games or so, but he's going to miss at least a couple of weeks with a quad strain. This looks like a big loss for the Tigers and probably a big loss for a lot of owners who got Kristen Stewart in the late rounds or for a dollar or two in their auctions. Uh, how will Detroit handle the outfield uh, spot that opens up with Kristen Stewart going to the IL. Yeah, it's really kind of a shame for the Tigers because they're not real deep to begin with. They're another rebuilder. Uh, it looks like uh, rookie Dustin Peterson, who they got from Atlanta, he was put on waivers by the Braves uh, this offseason, and retread Brandon Dixon, who was called up to uh, fill Stewart's roster spot. They're going to be the primary suspects in left field. Uh, you know, like a lot of these April injury notes, uh, there's just not a lot to get excited about in terms of replacements until we see who's who's going to get the early opportunity and who's going to get hot or who's going to get lucky. It kind of looks to me like left field might be a black hole for Detroit over the short term. In Seattle, Jock, it uh, looks like a significant injury stint for Wade LeBlanc. Four to six weeks, at least with an oblique strain, uh, they called up Eric Swanson from AAA to take LeBlanc's rotation spot. So assuming that he gets a couple of starts, what do we know about Eric Swanson? I think Swanson might be one of the more interesting unknown starting pitcher flyers right now. First off, he came over from the Yankees as part of that Paxton deal, and he owns a plus fastball. He's been commanding better recently, uh, fringe fringe average secondaries he looked good in his first start against Cleveland that's obviously not a high bar it's a pretty bad offense over there uh, um, but he only gave up a run in six innings he struck out five he walked a hitter so he could be useful in streaming situations if you need uh, if you need pitching and I say that uh, still realizing that he is a flyer so buyer beware I own him and I'm going to be checking his opposing schedule in advance he's uh, he's backed by that really good Seattle offense and a decent home venue and he's going to get a legitimate opportunity now he's he's going to be Seattle's number five starter until he proves that he can't handle it he's looked pretty good in a minor league career 331 ERA a 116 kind of whip he only had one start into triple a Tacoma this year before he got his call up and that was a fairly nondescript thing he didn't give up give up any earned runs only went five innings as they do sometimes in the minors at this time of year so Eric Swanson's uh you know what depending on your league context Jock this could be the kind of time that you want to grab the dice and roll them because it's not like he's the second coming of Max Scherzer but it's also not like he's just some kind of dud that they're pulling up to to fill you know five innings and take a beating I think they might have some hope for uh, for or Eric Swanson, and therefore, maybe so should we. Yeah, exactly. And context is everything. I, I speak from a deep league standpoint. My, my two primary leagues are very deep, 20-team, uh, 20-owner, 20 uh, mixed leagues uh, with, with big player penetration. So we have to take flyers on guys like Eric Swanson a lot earlier than people who play in shallower leagues were. But I, I, I mean, uh, comparatively speaking, I like his chances. Uh, I am a little leery. Now, going back to his minor league record, too, in 2018, when he was in the Yankees system, he actually climbed through three levels from A to AA to AAA and uh, amassed a 2.66 ERA with a whip right around one. So, again, it's the minor leagues. I understand he probably dominated at age 23 in, in, uh, in single-A ball, and we would expect that. But climbing the levels that quickly is usually a pretty good sign. 
Yeah, I agree. And uh, Seattle obviously wanted him if they were going to trade away Paxson. He was part of the deal. So uh, I think the Mariners had planned on moving him into the rotation at some point this year. They were very thin in in, uh, in the depth before that trade, before a lot of the trades they made this offseason when they decided to rebuild or retool. And he's part of the plan. In Oakland, uh, boy, Marco Estrada just had a horrendous start to the season. Got a lot of infield fly balls, which is kind of his mark, but uh, everything else was going wrong. Uh, velocity's down, swinging strike rate was down, home runs were up. He had a 6.85 ERA, was giving up home runs all over the place. Finally, he goes to the injured list. Uh, this might be a blessing in disguise for him and for his owners. Uh, where does a scuffling Oakland staff go from here? And what do you think are the chances that Marco Estrada's poor performance thus far has been related to his injury versus being a fly ball guy in a league where, once again, home runs are way up? Yeah, first off, Oakland's biggest problems is is that their best pitchers, uh, which include Sean Manea and A.J. Puck and Jesus Lazardo, are all still trying to return from injuries, which, is, which are going to take a while. Uh, for now, um, they're going to replace... Uh, um, Marco Estrada with Chris Bassett. Uh, he's he's hinted at back end upside over 14 major league starts during his career. Got an ERA just under four, but that's really his upside. Uh, the subpar dominance and control and a 4.61 expected ERA points to his risk. There's just nothing remarkable here in the way of skills. Um, they've got Daniel Menken and and Edwin Jackson waiting in the wings. They just signed Jackson again. I I just wouldn't take flyers on any of these names. I've seen them all pitch. Um, I think the A's are going to retread water or tread water until uh, until their their better arms return. Um, I don't know much about Estrada's injury, but his velocity has been declining a little bit every year, and it's really taking a a, a steep drop downward this year. Uh, I'm not sure how much he has left in him. What is he in his mid 30s right now? Um, his he was not trending well heading into this year, and he hasn't been very good. I. There's another guy I would be staying away from until I see uh, a, a few extended starts that, that tell me otherwise. And not only extended starts, but extended starts that aren't killing his uh, fantasy owners as they have been so far. I think the, the idea was uh, when he got uh, moved into Oakland, he signed as a free agent there after pitching in Toronto. And the idea was, I think, that Toronto's a pretty homer-friendly park, and so it's pretty antithetical to guys who are flyball pitchers like Marco Estrada really is. He pitches up in the zone a lot, relies on his uh, changeup to get ground outs, but he lives and dies by the fly ball. And in uh, Rogers Center, that's not such a great idea. But I think the theory was, you go to Oakland, it's a cavernous place, they're a pretty solid defensive club, that maybe he could rediscover some of that mojo that he had earlier in his career when he was getting lots of fly ball outs, except it turned into he was giving up lots of fly balls that were hitting the fence or going over it, which might be related to the baseball again. Uh, we'll talk about that later in the show with uh, with Todd Zola. But the, whatever it was, it wasn't working for Marco Strada, and it sure wasn't working for his fantasy owners. Yeah, exactly. If you can keep fly balls in the park in Oakland, which a lot of people can, it's not a big home run hitting park, and you've got all that foul ground, you can succeed there. But as you said, he wasn't keeping them in the park. His velocity has taken another turn, uh, another turn downward. He's not even getting swing and misses the way he was over previous years. This is the big change so far, at least in the uh, the five game small sample. So they really needed to get him out of the rotation, and it looks like this is the way they're going to do it. 
In Texas, second baseman Rugnet Odor went to the injured list with a sprained knee. They say he's going to miss at least a couple of weeks. The Rangers, another rebuilder, they're pretty thin on major league talent. How are they going to replace Rugnet Odor in their lineup? Well, for now, they've called up journeyman Danny Santana, who we're all familiar with. He had that great rookie year in Minnesota that wasn't backed up by the underlying metrics. Uh, and even though his skill set isn't exactly must-own, so far so good. He's 4 for 14. He's stolen a couple bases over his first four games. He's in a good offense, good home venue. And again, this comes back down to, to league context. If you're in a deep league and you need uh, somebody who qualifies at second base in the outfield and are just looking for a replacement for a few weeks, you can consider San, Santana. But he's a guy you're probably going to want to bail from after a couple of weeks. Uh, if you're not in that kind of a league, I would pass on Danny Santana. I remember Danny Santana from some other leagues, uh, including my home league years ago, where he came up, and as you mentioned, he had a really good uh, rookie year, and then the next year just went nowhere. And ever since then, he's been kind of streaky. You, you mentioned he's had a first four games with a couple of bags. He's four for 14, which is which is not too bad. And then it'll be three or four weeks of just nothing, and that's the risk that you take with signing guys like Danny Santana. Uh, wouldn't be a big injury week without another Yankee injury to report. Uh, Greg Bird this time goes to the injured list, and he could miss what they're saying is a couple of months with a plantar fascia tear. Uh, that's a foot injury, and it's really quite a problematic thing, as Albert Pujols can tell you. It looks like he's working on another lost season in a string of them. What are the Yankees going to do now? Well, right now they've called up a, a rookie making his major league debut, an older name, uh, Mike Ford. Uh, um, he's probably going to get some first base at bats for a while, given that he's a left-handed hitter. Now, he was profiled in our call-up space, and uh, on balance, it seems like Matthew St. Germain, who wrote him up, uh, likes him a little bit. He'll take a walk. He was showing some pop recently in the high minors. So, you know, again, in terms of this, an opportunity, he's another deep league flyer. But keep in mind that the Yankees have all kinds of resources and options, particularly as their walking wounded recover. They've talked about putting Miguel Andahar at first base to keep him from having to throw too often. So who knows how long this one will last. But uh, again, Ford, I guess, depending on how deep your league and, and is, uh, he, he, could be a, he could be a flyer. Yeah, and Flyers, uh, you know, they, they, by their name, they're they're inherently risky. And the thing that worries me about Mike Ford as a first baseman in the big leagues is even in the minors, he wasn't that big of a home run hitter. He only had 20 home runs in in a season once. That was a double-A, triple-A back in 2017. More recently, kind of the mid-teens in triple-A in, uh, and, and sometimes below that. So, if you're, if you're looking for power, I, I know he's a left-handed hitter and it's a friendly park for that, but uh, he seemed like he was you know, struggling for all he was worth in the minor leagues. I don't know what, what he's going to do against big league pitching. So uh, I wouldn't say don't sign him, but certainly don't sign him with the expectation that you're getting another uh, you know, a, a slugger of any kind. Yeah, I agree. This is one of those things where you're hoping to catch lightning in a bottle for maybe a couple, three weeks. I mean, he had, I think, five home runs over his first 39 at-bats this year in AAA, so maybe he brings some of that to that short porch. Who knows? But uh, agree, definitely a flyer. A weird story in Toronto. Uh, Jock, you and I are both old enough to remember when Steve Sachs all of a sudden just couldn't throw the ball from second base to first base. And uh, this seems to have been something that has afflicted Lourdes Gurriel of the Blue Jays. Came down with a case of the throwing yips to go along with his pretty awful start at the plate. And uh, he's been given a stint in AAA to try to straighten things out. 
In his place, another familiar veteran name, the kind of guy that the Blue Jays seem to be loading up on. Eric Sogard uh, is up. He's going to be playing some middle infield for Toronto. Is this another one of these situations where maybe you want to keep half an eye on it, but there's not a lot going on? Yeah, that's exactly right. It was it was kind of funny. I saw um, um, the error that I think got um, Guriel ultimately banished at AAA. It was a very simple ground ball to second, and he simply threw it into the dirt at first base or threw it wide and into the dirt. And uh, he's clearly uh, struggling right now with this thing mentally. He, he couldn't put, keep his head up after after the play. And uh, I forget who Toronto was playing, um, but uh, the, the opposition went on to score 200 runs that inning, and uh, Guriel was demoted the next day. But yeah, you've got Sogard and Alan Hansen handling the second base duties. I don't know how much worse it can get until either Guriel writes the ship or they decide that, uh, you know, maybe they bring up uh, Dante or Bobachet, who's actually a shortstop. But they, they've got to straighten out the, the that, that second base spot uh, before I start picking up people in Toronto again. Yes, and uh, the, the uh, issue here, I think, is it's going to be especially important if they want Marcus Stroman to do well because you need to have infielders with a 60% ground ball guy. And, you know, if he generates a ground ball to second and has the guy throw it, uh, I was watching the Lourdes Gurriel game also, and uh, the first one was 10 feet wide of the bag plate side, and the one that got him taken out was uh, 10 feet wide of the bag outfield side. And, and it was like he, he, he you could just see he didn't want to throw the ball. And I guess he's going to have to, try to figure that out uh, as you said in the minor leagues and they do have options in the minors although certainly they're not in any hurry to bring up some of those uh, big name rookies until after the uh, Super 2 deadline. Yeah that's right it was Stroman and, and and I think that last play added about 20 pitches to his total that in just that particular inning so uh, and, and and you're right you could tell he, he he's having problems with his mechanics he's trying to aim the ball and it's not being aimed real well right now. No, it is not, and uh, I hope that he can recover his his uh, equanimity. Do you think maybe that there's some aspect of his slow offensive start weighing on his mind to the extent that uh, you know he's striking out and not moving batters and generally being a, a pretty much a dud at the plate, and then he goes out in the field and he's stewing about it? Yeah, hard to say. I mean, who who knows what's in his mind? But but um, I, I mean, the throwing is a problem. The offense has been a problem from the get go. So this was a good demotion for Toronto. They had to get him out of there. And of course, uh, they also have Alan Hansen, a guy to keep in mind, uh, who might get some added playing time as well. Probably, again, not likely to do a ton with it. Uh, and finally, in Cleveland, boy, talk about teams that are trying everything except paying their players. Carlos Gonzalez gets a shot in the outfield in Cleveland, replacing Jordan Luplo on the 25-man roster. Uh, this is another vet. Uh, he's got a bit better of a track record than a lot of the guys that have been kind of shoring things up in Cleveland lately. Uh, their outfield offense has been dreadful. They, they need something. He's going to play a little bit. Is he worth uh, investing some fab? Well, you know, yeah, he's another vet, and he's had some really good years, and he's still only 33. Uh, he's going to get opportunity in Cleveland just because of their need, and he's a left-handed hitter. He'll be facing mostly right-handed pitching in left field, so that should give him, you know, if they give him a leash, and I and I think he has a leash, he's going to get about 70% of, uh, of the at-bats going forward. Uh, and uh, But the thing you got to remember is as good a hitter's park as progressive field projects now, it's not Coors, and... and Carlos Gonzalez was really sliding in Coors Field the last couple of years. Those were not Coors Field numbers he was putting up. So he's 33 now. I wouldn't expect the younger version. But, uh, yeah, if you're looking for a flyer, here's another one. 
One other reason that you might want to be looking at Carlos Gonzalez too is that he probably, considering the the relative anemia that afflicts that that lineup, especially after you get past the top four guys, I think Carlos Gonzalez is going to get what at bats he gets is going to be in either the fourth or the fifth slot around Carlos Santana and ahead of Tyler Naquin and and those kind of bottom four guys that are just really got no business in a big league lineup at all, uh, but. You know, if he gets into a run scoring, uh, run driving in or run production position, uh, Leonis Martin is an okay guy at the top of the order. Jose Ramirez has been in a funk all year. Then you got Kipnis, but Santana has been doing well, getting on base a lot. So Carlos Gonzalez could have some run production possibilities. Yeah, exactly. And he's experienced and, again, left-handed. So that does count for something. It does count for something, Jock. I appreciate you taking the time, and we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it's our second expert interview with Glenn Colton from Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and Fantasy Alarm. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Roto Gaming column, Steve Gardner writes about the early surge in home runs and some batters who might benefit beyond the obvious guys. In research, analyst Ed DeCaria has an interesting look at players who are what Ed calls surprisingly productive. These are players who were projected to have no value before the season, but who turn out to have value, sometimes quite a bit of value, during the season. Ed covered hitters earlier and has just finished the project with a report on surprisingly productive pitchers. And in daily call-ups, the Baseball HQ scouting team looks at recent call-ups, including Atlanta right-handers Tukey Toussaint and Mike Soroka, St. Louis right-hander Ryan Helsley, Chicago catcher Taylor Davis, and all the other prospects who are being called up every day. Those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at Baseball HQ all the time, including player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We've got our buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relief pitchers. There's fantasy market analysis, injury analysis, and tools like player projections, daily dashboards, leading indicators, and all that content, all those tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our second expert interview of the show with Glenn Colton, the co-host of the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and a regular contributor at FantasyAlarm.com. He's also been a guest on this show many times. Glenn, welcome back. Always a pleasure to be here, Patrick. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to have you. Uh, How are your teams doing so far this year? You know, it's a mixed bag, of course, this early, but I am just promising myself that I'm not going to overreact to one-eighth, one-ninth of the season. Uh, It's just too early. And so far, I think all the teams, even with injuries, are going to contend. And you really can't ask for much more than that. It's when you fall out of the race early that it gets really dispiriting, I can tell you from experience. And uh, if your teams are all, if you can see a pathway to contending, then that's where you need to be at this time of the year. Oh, that's certainly true. And, you know, we're in a in a difficult situation, Rick Wolf and I, who, you know, play as Colton and the Wolfman, because there's almost no chance we can repeat what we did last year. Um, 
having won Tout Wars AL, Labor AL, and the FSTA Mixed League against the type of players like you and others that we compete against. So now we're just looking to maybe get one of those titles back. And really, in the great scheme of things, three in a year is a little more than average, so you have to be looking forward to at some point you're going to have a few a little less than average, and in the long run it'll work out to approximately where it should, just like a baseball season. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. But again, you know, uh, there are a lot of really great players out there in home leagues around the, wor- around the world, around the nation. But the folks that we play with, the, the Ron Chandlers and the, you know, Steve Gardner's and Chris Liss's, Jeff, Jeff Erickson's, Howard Bender's, you know, the, Ray Flowers, these are, these are the best of the best. So it's always fun to uh, compete with them. And when you climb the top of the ladder, it's even more fun. You write a regular column, Glenn, at FantasyAlarm.com. The column is called The Week That Was, and it's an entertaining overview of what went on in the week in fantasy baseball. Not everything, of course, but some of the highlights that you noticed. Uh, One of the players you highlighted in your most recent column was Seattle right-handed pitcher Brandon Brennan. What was it about Brennan that caught your eye? You know, it was one of those things where, the first of all, Mike Podharzer picked him up in Tout Wars, and I always... It always bothers me when there's a guy I haven't focused on that somebody else picked up because maybe I missed something. And in this case, I think I really did. Uh, Brennan's, uh, I said this in the column on Fantasy Alarm, his stats were sick. Uh, You know, no ERA, uh, high velo, 64% ground balls with 16% swinging strike rate, and a chase rate, you know, uh, an O swing, if you will, of over 40%. Those are just dramatic numbers that he was putting up, and you put that together with the fact that they don't really have an established closer. Brennan struck me as a guy who could sneak into the role sometime this year. Yeah, it's those kind of skills that really make it interesting in an, in an unsettled bullpen. I actually did look at Brandon Brennan, and um, Podhorser just beat me to the punch, unfortunately. Uh, you also suggested owners keep an eye on Kansas City first baseman, third baseman Hunter Dozier. And I'm quoting you here, a bargain on which loyal readers can pounce. Uh, it's too late for pouncing in tout American League. Uh, I got Hunter Dozier at the draft. Why should listeners be considering pouncing on Hunter Dozier? You know, you take a look at the pedigree. He, he's a guy who is at a high pedigree who wasn't really producing. And then you take a look and say, okay, he's only hitting 256. That's fine. In this day and age, it doesn't hurt you. But when you really get behind the numbers, a 242 BABIP is unlucky to begin with, right? Typical average about 300. But a 242 BABIP with a 40% hard hit rate is almost hard to do. So that just the pure numbers were going to drive that up. And if you have a guy playing every day who, who's got multi-positional eligibility, whose average won't hurt you, and is hitting the ball really hard, that's a pretty good set of combinations. Yeah, I thought so uh, as, as well. And one of, one of the things that interested me is what you said about his, his pedigree. This is a, a young player who was quite highly thought of, and then he struggled at first. And uh, there's a sort of a mantra around BaseballHQ.com, which is the 10-step uh, process by which a prospect becomes a star, the Alex Rodriguez model, which is sometimes at first they struggle and then they kind of fall off our radars a little bit. And maybe Hunter Dozier is a bit of a victim of that. He, you know, he comes up, he struggles, everybody just says, bah, and they give up on him for the rest of his life. And then it maybe it just takes him a little longer than we had hoped. 
for him to figure things out, you know, get his swing down, get his attitude down, maybe adjust to being an adult on his own. We don't know, but there's lots of things that come with maturity besides physical size. I think that's 100% right, and I think that people forget how young some of these kids are. I mean, he was drafted in the first round in 2013, and he's now, we've heard about Hunter Dozier, you know, for six years, he's 27. (laughs) You know, he's not 37. So this is a kid who, coming into this season, had, you know, really not reached his prime or was about to reach his prime and never really had the opportunity to play because they had Eric Hosmer at first base and Mike Moustakis at third base. Both those guys are gone, and Dozier is going to play. That's something else that we have to keep in mind, is that uh, in other organizations he might have been in trouble because uh, you know they might have gone out and found somebody else to, to pick up those at-bats, but they're doing things on the cheap. They still have him at his, uh, at his constrained salary for the next uh, few years anyways. And maybe that's something else that we need to start thinking about as we look at draft and as we look at early uh, free agent moves is is the cheapness or the relative uh, penury of the of the organization a pathway to playing time just the same as talent is? Oh, I think that's definitely something that has to be looked at, and you have to understand the organization. So just to, you know, the difference, you get at Pittsburgh, right, which is very, very slow to bring up their high-level prospects. So a Kibrian Hayes is far less likely to be brought up and get a spot than some other organizations like San Diego this year who just said, you know, forget it. Tatis is our best player at shortstop. We're going to bring him up. Or, or the Yankees who said, I don't care. Glaber Torres is my best second baseman. He's 21. I'm going to play him. So you really have to understand the organizations, too, to assess the likelihood that you know these cheaper guys, both uh, in Major League Baseball and cheaper in fantasy, will rise to a productive level. You also said in your column, fantasy owners should be looking at a pitcher who has been a disappointment to owners for quite a while now, Boston left-hander Eduardo Rodriguez. I think he's on your tout American League roster, in fact. Why should we be interested? Yeah, we have uh, Eduardo Rodriguez, or Erod, uh, on our labor AL roster. We got beat out in tout, I forget by who. But this is a guy who whose numbers just keep getting better. He's only 25. And his ERA and his whip have been going down over the last three years. And he also had a pitch mix change. He's throwing more sinkers and cutters and fewer forcing fastballs, which have really increased his productivity. Swing strike rate has been over 11% for three straight years, which is very nice. And he was in the top 10 of uh, softest contact allowed um, which is really a big deal, obviously, because if you're getting hit hard, things bad things are going to happen. Add to all of that, he spent time with Pedro Martinez learning Pedro's slider, and if he can master that pitch as well, I think the sky's the limit for Rodriguez. Uh, I, I think that he had two bad outings, which is unfortunate for those who own him, but it's an opportunity to get a guy I think is going to have a really good year. It's funny you should mention some of those stats uh, in my master notes a little later on in this show and at BaseballHQ.com and in the newsletter. I had a uh, little study on starting pitchers who in the early going have pretty good track records as far as outcomes go, especially soft and medium contact, which is the kind of contact you want because it leads to the most outs. And Eduardo Rodriguez, he's not at the top of the list by any means, but he's not at the bottom of it either. No, and you know... This is a guy who 
only in an AL only league where you put a lot of money into hitting, could he be your ace? But in most leagues that you know your listeners and our listeners play in, he's a he's an SP three with SP one upside, and that's exactly what you want. And finally, in that column, I'd like to ask you about your buddy Schultz. You uh, you include a little comment from your buddy Schultz every time, and yeah, he used your column this uh, week to tell the fantasy world he likes outfielder Fran Mil Reyes of San Diego. What's Schultz's take on on Reyes? Yeah, I think he was really at the end of the day preaching the uh, well known and and uh, brilliant mantra from from your site, Baseball HQ: uh, draft skills, not role. And I think really what you know Schultz is basically saying here is the skills that your eyeball sees for this guy, speed, power, uh, hard hits, uh, you know, just this nice smooth swing. He's saying, look, this guy's going to find his way into the lineup. And, and I would agree with that because I think that, you know, you take a look and you see a Will Myers who rarely is able, you know, to stay healthy in uh, – uh, playing the outfield and some other players uh, they have out there, Hunter Renfro, who's had trouble, you know, hitting both sides of the plate. Reyes, if he can stay healthy, is going to get far more at bats than I think people expect. It would be nice if he hit a few more fly balls, but he's actually been pushing that ratio up a little bit extra this year. And uh, the things I like about Fran Mil Reyes are probably the same things or among the same things that Schultz was looking at, which is. He only strikes out about 22% of the time, which sounds like a lot, but is much better than the league average. He walks more than 10% of the time, which is a really good indicator for power. And uh, he makes hard contact an awful lot of the time. We use a, a metric called hard contact index, which is a combination of not striking out and hitting the ball hard. And the league average is set at 100. He's at 155, so he's basically half again as as good at hard contact than, uh, than league average. And that all seems to point to a guy who's, once he gets the playing time and if he can maintain the playing time, there's a lot of upside here, and upside is what wins leagues. Oh, I completely agree with that, and I'll throw in a couple of other interesting stats for you. No infield fly balls uh, so far this year uh, in the beginning of the season, and infield fly balls being automatic outs. That's, that's a great number. He's also going opposite field more often. It's still not as much as you probably want to see with a guy with that power, but it is going you know, on the rise, which you do want to see the right um, trajectory. And his contact rate is up substantially from last year, which, of course, is exactly what you want to see. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Glenn Colton from Colton and the Wolfman, from SiriusXM, from Fantasy Alarm. And uh, you and your partner, Rick Wolf, Glenn, devised what you came to call the SMART system. And SMART is an acronym for scarcity, management, anchors, relievers, and team. How much of the SMART system, which uh, I use in my draft planning extensively, how much of that same thinking can be applied in season? Oh, I think I think a lot. I think... It- it's certain things you have to think about, um, but the same rationale as you're um, getting injuries, having underperformance and overperformance, you have to sort of rebalance your team, right? So a guy you thought might be your anchor might not, or a guy that you weren't counting on being the anchor has become the anchor, which frees you up maybe to trade a bigger name pitcher, uh, by way of example, or... Um, you know, people change teams or may change teams. 
So T in smart stands for team. The basic thinking, uh, you know, hitters on good teams, more RBI opportunities, hit with guys on base, score more runs, see more fastballs, etc. You start getting to the middle of the year, you have to assess, is this player still going to be on this team? So one of the classic examples of that will be, you know, Yasiel Puig, who um, is on a team that isn't hitting but should, but is in this great hitter's ballpark, is he going to end up on, you know, in as good a situation? So I think you need to change how you look at the smart system but use the same concepts throughout the year. And, of course, M in smart stands for management, and one must manage very, very carefully each and every week in the moves, the trades they make, the trades they don't, uh, to maximize their chances to uh, get that you who shower. Glenn, you mentioned this, the idea that team matters in the players' environmental context, but I'm wondering what uh, you and Rick think in the team context about the wisdom or the acumen that's being shown by the organization. Now, this comes up a lot lately on Baseball HQ Radio with some of the experts I've talked with, and, and they're starting to put a lot of stock in I like guys who, who play for Tampa because they seem to get it. They seem to be good at, at picking players, at acquiring players, at developing players, and at promoting and using players at the major league level a lot more than some other teams. And if you know that about an organization, it seems to be that uh, to a lot of people that that should be a little extra tick mark on that guy's uh, on your cheat sheet, whether before the season for draft purposes or in the season for trade acquisition purposes, fab acquisition purposes, and so on. Where do you stand on just the business smarts, if you will, of the organization rather than the on-field team? I think it's, it's definitely, as you said, a tick mark or maybe a double tick mark in the pro or con column, depending on the player. Um, if I had to re-rank uh, the players and I could you know, go in the time machine and be in mid-March, I would say, though I was never that high on Jake Bowers, Tampa got rid of him, I would have taken him down another tick or two. Tampa traded for, for Yandy Diaz, I would take him up another tick or two. But I have also, you know, used that in the past. You know, Dan Vogelbach, who I say is one of the great sell highs uh, ever in fantasy baseball right now, but the Chicago Cubs gave up on him. And the Cubs and Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer, they know for what they're doing. So the, that they gave up on that hitter sort of makes me really uh, suspicious. But let, you can't carry it too far because sometimes teams trade away players because they have a need. That the Cubs traded Glaber Torres or Eloy Jimenez doesn't tell me those are players not going to succeed. You have to look at the situation. They traded them because they had a need and they knew that what they were giving up. So you can't just go, oh, the good team traded them. They must not be valuable. On the other hand, you get a situation like Chicago also signed Yu Darvish, and Yu Darvish has been something of a dud, more injury problems, uh, hasn't been that effective. Uh, how do you balance all that out? Do you separate it, hitters and pitchers, or is it just, you know, everybody's entitled to a mulligan? Well, I think that it depends on, you really have to assess um, when somebody goes out and picks up a, a pitcher who hasn't really been successful, like the Cubs saw what there was in Jake Arrieta, um, just by way of example, um, I think with you, Darvish, and I don't know this, so I'm just guessing, but my guess is that that was, looked like a bigger risk on paper than it was for the organization because of insurance. So the upside was huge, and the financial risk wasn't really in performance. It was in injury. And that, so I, don't, I just give them a mulligan on that one. Um, 
and especially a team that has a lot of money, Yankees, Dodgers, uh, Cubs, Red Sox, that they gamble on a high-priced player means less to me than if a team gambles on a high-priced player where they only really get to do it once. One item in particular that caught my eye, and you referred to this a second ago, is is the changing of teams when a player moves from one team to another, and the fact that they might need time to acclimatize to the new situation. Uh, maybe they were clubhouse leaders where they used to be, and they've got to feel their way a little bit in the new place or vice versa, or the team says, we need you to be a leader in the clubhouse, and it's just not who you are, those kind of things. But how long do we have to wait and watch a player who's in a new environment to say, all right, I'm signing off on this, he looks okay, versus uh, I'm looking at this guy and I'm real suspicious that it's not working? I think most of the time it's really just a short adjustment period, you know, a month to two months. And, you know, if you're playing in a redraft league and you get six months, you re- and you pay market value, you're paying for six months of what you expect that player to produce. If he's only going to produce that in four months or four and a half months, by definition, you've overpaid. So we don't, we don't say don't pick a player who's changed homes. We say don't pay full value for that player because you're going to get an adjustment period. And if somebody else wants to gamble and pay full value... So be it. And for every J.D. Martinez that, you know, beat the rule, if you will, there's a long list of players that don't. And, you know, I was listening to a podcast. I don't know if you listen to it, The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. He's a, he's a lawyer. He's a former agent. Uh, he, he worked for the Green Bay Packers for quite a long time, and now he's a consultant of sorts. And he was talking with a player agent for Russell Wilson, who just signed the biggest contract in NFL history. And what was interesting to me about that, leaving aside the money and the football parts of it, was that Russell Wilson's agent made a point of talking about how much Russell Wilson wanted to stay in Seattle to the point that he was willing to give something of a discount and to meet them halfway on some of the contract terms. And I wonder if we need to be, rather than just thinking about organizations, whether we need to be thinking about what was it that got this player to that place? Was he traded partway through the season because they didn't need him anymore and he's just like, okay, now you're picked up and moved? Or did he choose to go there as a free agent, which means there's something about the city that he likes, there's something about the team he likes. He's going into it with a pretty much guaranteed positive frame of mind because he elected that team rather than just having it shoved down his throat. Do you think there's something to that that on the margins might be something we need to take into account? Yeah, I think that that's, I hadn't thought of it that exactly that way, if you will, but I do think there is something to take into account in assessing the sort of non-saber metrics. I buy into, you know, the advanced metrics and the predictive data of the, you know, sub-indicators that we talk about a lot on our show and you talk about on, uh, on this great podcast. But I do think that these types of soft information like you're describing, plus other changes, so, you know, Sonny Gray reuniting with his college uh, pitching coach in Cincinnati, uh, Jonathan Lucroy, uh, you know, working with his former hitting coach from, from Milwaukee when he was a top-flight hitter. These things, I think, really do matter. And something that uh, Howard Bender said earlier in the show was, uh, uh, think about a guy like uh, uh, 
well, we talked about Frank Thomas going through a nasty divorce for a whole season. Remember how that really did in his season. And if you have personal news like that for ill or for, or for good, uh, also can have an effect on how the player is likely to perform or something you want to add into the risk column if it's, a, if it's a, a, an unfortunate sort of thing like that. Or uh, what Howard talked about was uh, uh, C.J. Wilson having a child right at the start of uh, the of the baseball season and every time he was at home playing games in Texas or California wherever it was at the time he was looking after a newborn and we've both done that and boy sometimes you're pretty tired and you probably don't feel like going out and throwing a baseball around but he played much better on the road because he was getting nine hours sleep a night and not having to worry about uh, looking after a, a newborn. Yeah I hadn't heard that C.J. Wilson story but it makes uh, a lot of sense and brings back uh, a, a lot of very tired memories, uh, yeah. so I, I hear you. Look, I, I think that those pieces of information um, in this day and age are, are really, really important. The, you know, I remember, you know, Kurt Suzuki was very close with his grandfather, and his grandfather passed away, and uh, Javi Baez was very close with his sister, and his sister passed away. These are terrible human tragedies, and, and the human part of it is so much more important than the fantasy baseball part of it. But to the extent you are playing fantasy baseball and you know that a player is going to be distracted by something just more important than the game, then of course you should consider it in your valuation. In your rules of engagement that are an associated part of the smart system, you talk about protecting your ratios, and I think this is really important. Can you elaborate for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, It is so much easier to take a look at standings and see I am 10 homers behind, I am five wins behind, I'm six saves ahead there. They're very easy to sort of get your arms around, and it's very easy to understand how one can move up or down in those categories. The ratios, it's not as simple, and people debate this all the time, and I know that Todd Zola may not agree with me, and he's far more, you know, uh, engineering and mathematically sophisticated than I am, But I do honestly believe that you can get into a hole in the ratios that you can't climb out of. Whereas if you get in a hole in steals and go and trade for Delino DeShields and Billy Hamilton, you might be able to climb out of that hole. So I think it's important to make sure, not that you're at the top of the charts, but that you make sure that you're in a position where you're not going to be stuck near the bottom. Because it's very hard to win a, a good league if you come in, you know, toward the bottom in two categories. Yeah, it is tough. And the uh, the flip side of that is try as, as much as you can in the early going to build a foundation. Because if you go in, uh, you know, sort of into June and you're you're sitting in third spot in those whip and ERA categories, uh, it gives you a little bit of finagling room because it as, as difficult as it is to move up from a low position, it's also difficult to fall down from a high one for the same reason, because the denominators are getting bigger. I mean, there is still movement, but it's, it's the more innings you've got in the books, the more likely it is that your, your movement is going to be constrained to a relatively narrow range. If you're up at the top, that narrow range is a benefit to you. If you're down at the bottom, it's a detriment to you. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that you know, in leagues like, in most leagues where you have, uh, you can stream pitchers, you can move them out of your lineup, uh, unlike labor where you can't do that, I think it's really important to watch after uh, where your pitchers are going, where are they uh, pitching. Um, I remember uh, we're in the NFBC, Rick Wolf and uh, Fantasy Alarm Chairman Al Williams and I share a team, uh, 
and one of the things we did is we had both uh, Quintana and um, Walker Bueller as pitchers we like, and I like both of those guys, but Bueller was pitching, I think, week two in Colorado and Quintana in Milwaukee, and we said, oh, no, <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> we moved them both out of the lineup. Both pitched actually badly, and I think that had a huge benefit to our ratios just to not have them in there that week. So I, I think you, you can manage that carefully, uh, and you should. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Glenn Colton from Colton and the Wolfman, a very successful partnership team, also at Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. And Glenn also writes at FantasyAlarm.com. And Glenn, uh, you're in the same tout league as I am. I'm curious about some of the moves you've been making lately. Uh, first, you fabbed uh, Kansas City 30-meter sprinter uh, Terrence Gore for $6 to sub for Irugnet Odor, who's hurt. Uh, how did you set the price uh, that six, six units, $6, whatever you want to call it, out of 1000 seemed to be a price that would work for you, get you the player without overspending? Yeah, you know, I mean, the theory go- went there that um, it's a very, very shallow pool of players that you can pick up and provide any value as a hitter. Um, at, so we thought, okay, if Terrence Gore steals two bases in a week, steals are hard to come by, and we thought, mm, you know, somebody might bid two or three or four, um, and we wanted to get them, if we could get them at six, but if somebody wanted to bid 11 or 20 or 30, you know, go ahead and have them. And the hope was that Odor would only be out a week or a week and a half, and then we could let Gore go and bring Odor back. Because what's unique about Tout Wars is if a player comes off the disabled list in the middle of the week, in a weekly league, you can activate him right away as long as you cut the player he's replacing. So we thought, this is, only, this is not going to get to a full two weeks with Odor, so we're only really trying to steal a few steals, if you will, before he gets back. If I'm not mistaken, I think uh, the, uh, Gore was your, actually your second choice, but you got outbid on uh, Taylor Ward of the Angels uh, by double. Uh, you had the $6 bid, and he went for 12 something like that. So uh, how much calibration is there involved in setting those prices for you? Well, I think it's more, it depends on who we're talking about. A player that you really want, that's much more complicated. For us, it was... You know, we wanted to get one of a bunch of p- players, if you will, and so we set the prices where, as long as we got one of these guys. Now, I didn't know, and I don't think anybody knew, that Ward was going to be sent down uh, very shortly after all of that happened. But this was just, I'm hoping we get one of a few players, um, as opposed to uh, I really targeting Ward or I'm really targeting Gore. Yeah, I noticed that uh, whenever I review your guys' uh, transactions, you always put in five or six bids on every player you need to replace because it's so important to not get shut out. So you, you get down into the weeds a little bit. It's not so bad on pitchers. It can be a little tough on hitters, that's for sure. Uh, but one of the guys you got was uh, Boston reliever Hector Velasquez. Uh, you got him for a buck, I think. Uh, Alex Cobb went on the deal for you guys. Uh, what were you thinking with Hector Velasquez? Was it the start he was going to make that week? That's exactly what it was. It was just trying to... It, it was actually a couple of things. It was, one, he was going to start on Monday against Baltimore, and, uh, you know, that was at least a, a good shot at a win. didn't work out. Um, didn't pitch so badly. It didn't hurt us, really. Um, but the idea was that we would get that start, and as we were talking about the rules, and you really have to know your league's rules, Alex Cobb is coming off the DL today, 
So I knew that we could get that start from Velasquez and cut him for Friday's start, today when we're taping, uh, start for Cobb, so we could actually get a two-start pitcher for a very low price. And I like the comment you made on Twitter when you managed to get catcher Tom Murphy for a zero bid, that's allowed in Tout Wars, to replace Gary Sanchez, who was a $25, $26 acquisition at the draft. And your Twitter comment said, well, what are you going to do? I thought truer words were never spoken, but how do you calibrate the potential relatively paltry gains that you're going to get in counting stats from a player like Tom Murphy, offsetting the potential harm he might do you in the ratio category of on-base percentage that we use? Well, I, the theory being that I didn't expect Murphy to get many at-bats. So in this context, so far this week, he's had four at-bats. Theoretically, and, and Sanchez may be back Sunday, so I may be able to sneak him back in uh, on Sunday. But, you know, I figured if I get one ribby or one run scored, that may make a difference at the end of the year. And so just sort of take a shot at it. Murphy is a guy I always thought was a better hitter than than backstop, if you will. Um, and I said, okay, let's see if we can get a little value. As it turns out, of course, as you know, he went three for four in his only game, so his OBP for us is a, is a solid 750, which I will take any day of the week. That is good. Uh, moving on, uh, you've had a background in the law. You're, a, you're an attorney yourself. You were you worked with the fantasy industry when some of the states uh, of the United States were looking at banning fantasy sports as being gambling, and that uh, hurdle got successfully cleared. Uh, now your fantasy partner, Rick Wolf, tweeted recently about the convergence of fantasy sports into the sports gambling environment. Of course, the sports gambling in the United States was largely legalized by May's Supreme Court decision striking down the federal law that said that you couldn't sponsor, or, uh, operate, or advertise, or do anything with sports gambling. Now now they all can. And you said in on Twitter that you moderated a panel on the topic recently. And it seems odd to say with the court's decision coming up to a year old, but it's still, it's still early. How do you see the convergence of fantasy and sports gambling happening? And what, what's just your overview of the whole situation? Sure. And to uh, be overly lawyerly, the following views are mine and mine alone and not that of my firm or my clients. Uh, but my view is that the whole thing is still a giant mess. The, the PASPA law made little sense. Congress surely could have said gambling is legal or gambling is illegal. They didn't do either. They said that a state can't make a particular law legalizing gambling, which the Supreme Court threw out. But Congress has still not acted to say, in essence, what states can do uh, within their borders. And Either Congress will legalize, or it won't, or it won't do anything. Right now, it hasn't done anything, so it's going state by state. I think states will see that gambling happens anyway. Um, prohibition didn't work for liquor, and I don't think it's worked for gambling. So states will see, and more and more will come online, uh, legalizing and regulating gambling. And I think you will see it proliferate over the next few years. As far as the convergence with fantasy, I think that it's all... It's different ways. Fantasy and gambling are not the same thing, but they're different ways in which people can have a rooting interest in what they're watching outside of just being the fan of a particular team. And frankly, you're not watching, um, you know, uh, the Royals and the, 
you, you know, the San Francisco Giants this year in September unless you're either betting on the game or have guys on your fantasy team. You mentioned that the uh, the the current state of affairs is going to be that the various U.S. states are going to create a real crazy quilt, it sounds like, of various laws and various restrictions, and some of them are going to ban it outright, have already, I think, or announced that they're going to do so. Some of it's going to be much more carte blanche and, and everything in between. And is there any concern in, in the legal establishment or in the legal world about what happens when some of these operators in a state where it's legal somehow start soliciting business from states where it's not or crossing state borders in general, given that the, the law, is, as you explained, it sounds like it restricts the state to governing its own affairs within its own borders. But so much gambling, as we know, takes place across borders, including fantasy, if they elect to treat fantasy as gambling or, or want to look at it or regulate it in that way. This seems uh, like part of what you called a big mess. Well, it is. And there's always a concern that a bad actor will ruin it for everybody else, if you will. I mean, anyone who's played on a sports team uh, knows that the, uh, you know, you're in practice and you didn't hit the cutoff man uh, in baseball or you didn't get back on defense in basketball. The whole team runs uh, laps and because it's, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And I think that's the same in industries that are under the microscope. So it is a big concern what the bad actors will do. Um, I think there's a substantial number of uh, upstanding industry professionals, uh, consultants, lawyers who are telling uh, clients and prospective clients, look, here are the things you have to do to be uh, compliant with the various laws. And hopefully uh, people in getting into the gambling business, getting into the fantasy business, will be smart enough to take good advice. Sort of the same thing as, as a rich owner not listening to a, a very smart GM. Uh, why hire the GM if you're not going to listen to them? And last question on this topic, is there any risk or, or concern that states that are tolerant of fantasy are, are going to become less tolerant of it because it will get lumped in with gambling in general? And if they take a hard stance that they don't want gambling inside their state borders, that somehow fantasy sports will get caught up in the, in the undertow? Yeah, I think that's one of two concerns of, of that nature, Patrick. Uh, one of them is exactly what you're saying, that people without studying the issue will fail to understand this, the substantial distinction between fantasy on the one hand and gambling on the other. And second, even in the states that um, embrace and legalize both uh, games and contests, will regulate and put the same regulations on fantasy and gambling. And that's just inappropriate for the major reason that the prospects for affecting the integrity of the game when you're gambling just Red Sox will beat Yankees or Yankees will beat Red Sox uh, is much different than trying to affect the integrity of the game when there's all kinds of different players and permutations in a fantasy league. So the, the real risk is, is that the regulation will be one size fits all when one size surely does not fit all. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Glenn Colton. Colton and the Wolfman from Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and Fantasy Alarm. And uh, Glenn, as you know, during the season, I like to get our experts to talk about players they think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Uh, I'd like to start with your boons. Uh, these are guys you think should interest our listeners. In the American League, who's a hitter you like as a boon? I'm going to go with Gary Sanchez. I mean, he's already obviously... Uh, hit six home runs despite missing the last week. But I think people are focused way too much on one bad year last year. Uh, 
Um, he had a 200 BABIP last year that's never going to last. He was top 5% barrel rate last year, and it's a guy who his other two years in the major leagues had a 270-plus batting average, and he's all of 26 years old, which for catchers is actually even early, uh, but yet he's in his fourth year in the major leagues. Even if he only gets 500 plate appearances or 450 plate appearances, I think he's going to be far and away the best catcher in fantasy. Yeah, that 186 batting average, uh, sub-300 on base last year, everybody got all up in arms about it, but it was really an anomaly when you look at his track record for, through the minors and majors, something I didn't understand. Uh, over to the National League, who's a boon hitter that you like? I'm going to go with Jason Hayward, of, of, of all players. Uh, you know, this is a guy who's in some ways sort of been become the big money joke of a lot of uh, commentators and whatnot, but he's just a different player this year than he has been in years past. You can The eye test tells me that, but also this is a guy who has not hit the ball hard over 30% of the time since being with the Braves in 2012. Now it's all the way up to 36%, which is you know a, a big addition for him. And that's, number one, that really excites me about what he's been doing. But number two is he is contacting the ball even more, up to 85%, but chasing far less. He reduced his chase rate so far this year from 32 last year to 24 this year and very rarely swings and misses. So it's a guy in a good lineup who can run, who's hitting the ball harder, and actually using his physical gifts. I think he's going to outperform what people paid for him by a substantial amount. Well, you got to like the strikeout rate and walk rate. Uh, strikeouts are way down to under 10%. Uh, walk rate's up over almost at 16%. So his uh, walk-to-strikeout ratio is better than one. Uh, that's the indicator of a guy who's really got things figured out. Uh, over to the mound in the American League, Glenn, who's a guy who's a, a boon for you? I'm going to stay with the Yankees, and it makes me sort of feel like a homer, but... I don't really care. I'm going with Domingo Herman. Uh, picked him up both in Tout Wars and Labor. And I remember when I picked him up in Labor, uh, Tristan Cockroft from ESPN, who's you know, you know terrific baseball guy in every way, said, oh, you stole him. And I, I guess I don't really understand why he wasn't a bigger deal. Um, last year, 102 Ks in just 85 innings in his first you know, go-round in the big leagues, a 15-swinging strike rate. And he was unlucky, uh, 62% left on base or strand rate, which is really bad. And he, the guy throws in the mid-90s, has a plus change and a cutter, uh, uh, sorry, and a curveball, excuse me, and obviously pitches on a team, even with all the injuries that should yield him uh, a lot of wins. So I am a big fan of uh, Domingo Herman. I did not know, of course, that Severino would get hurt, but I think Herman was going to get, uh, get a role anyway. And he's actually even been better this year than last, uh, swinging strike all the way up to uh, 16.5%. Yeah, that that huge swinging strike rate is something that you really have to love. Uh, the, this is something I think that's going to really work its way from you know, the sort of advanced metrics crowd right down into the into the rank and file of fantasy baseball because it's such a critical thing. Uh, over in the National League, who's a pitcher who's a boon for you? I'm a big fan of Caleb Smith. In, in the National League. And, yeah, I know the Marlins are probably not going to win a lot of games, but this guy's got just really, really good stuff. And it's hard to find pitchers at that level. And, um, you know, he's a former Yankee prospect, so maybe there's a theme here, Patrick. 
but that's a big ballpark, so you know that you sort of half the games, you can allow for some of the mistakes. Last year, you know, 11% swing strike rate this way, this year all the way up to 14%. Um, and if you take a look at it, 2.65 ERA, yeah, the, the fielding independent pitching is a little higher, the FIP at 322, but I'll still take that any day of the week. Um, so I think this is a guy with a lot of talent who doesn't give up a lot of hard hits and just looks like he's coming into himself. So that's my boon. Yeah, Caleb Smith uh, right now, 265 ERA, I think his whip is below one, which is fantastic. Are, are you legitimately thinking he's going to maintain that sort of level of pitching, or is there a little bit of uh, inflation coming as far as that? What's your expectation? No, I think there's some inflation coming. I mean, you take a look at the, you know, I, for a guy who pitches in Florida, I don't think the XFIP is that valuable because I don't think it's fair to normalize uh, the home run rate when he has a park that suppresses home runs so much. But look at the FIP and say, okay, do I expect somewhere between 3-2 and 3-5 for the whole year? Yeah, probably. But I'll take that, uh, you know, any day of the week. And do I expect a whip under one? Well, no. But do I expect a whip under one, two? Yeah. And I'll take that any day of the week as well. Amen. Uh Glenn Colton's Boons, Gary Sanchez of New York, uh, Jason Hayward of Chicago, Domingo Herman of New York, and Caleb Smith of Miami. Let's move over to the Baines. Glenn, these are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious or downright uh, evasive. Uh, back to the American League. Who's a Bane hitter? Carlos Correa. Uh, I, I like the player much better in major, you know, in, in real baseball than in fantasy. Uh, he only hit two thirty nine last year, which is... Um, you know, hardly what you want to see. And the guy simply doesn't run anymore. This is not the guy from 15 and 16 who gave you double-digit steals. He has five over the last two years and only one, you know, so far this year. So you take away the speed, the power is not enormous. Um, and he's hitting 273 now with a 340 Babbitt. When that normalizes, that says to me, you know, the batting average is, is going to go down. Um, so... Uh, and he's also hitting a lot of infield flies. I mean, a, a double-digit number there. So I think he's a good player. I want him on my real team, but I think he's overrated for fantasy purposes. Something I like looking at when I'm considering players who I hope will contribute some runs is their uh, stolen base opportunity rate. Like, out of out of their stolen base opportunities, how many times do they actually try to steal a base? And so far this year, according to Baseball Reference, uh, Houston has had... 27 stolen base opportunities as baseball reference describes them, which is pretty much an open base in front of the guy, uh, not counting home. And he's only tried uh, once, one time in 27 tries, which means uh, in an average year, you're going to have about 300 or so. You'd be lucky if he gets 10 tries and at the rate he's going, maybe not even that. Uh, who's your National League Bane hitter? National League Bane hitter, I, I really hate to say this, but it's Chris Bryant. Uh, who who I just like as a player and who I root for because I think there's, you know, a tremendous amount of talent there. But last year, two out of six in stolen bases, so that aspect of his value is, is largely sort of gone by the wayside, if you will. Um, and he's not hitting the ball nearly as hard as he used to. Um, you know, it's a little bit up this year, but he had two years. You know, when he won his MVP, he was 40%. And in the last two years, he's been 31 and 32 which is not nearly the same sort of level of, uh, you know, of proficiency. And I just, I wonder whether, I just don't know, but I wonder whether he is, uh, you know, completely healthy. So 
this is a guy who I'm rooting for, but I don't think is likely to return the price that you had to pay to to acquire him. And you know, in 74 plate appearances this year, we're looking at one homer, which is not Bryant-esque, if you will. Worries for me here are a slowly increasing strikeout rate and a declining walk rate. He used to be up in the sort of 14 range. Now he's under 10. And to me, that's a real red flag. Uh, in the American League, who's a Bane pitcher for you? David Price. Um, again, a player you kind of like to root for other than I can't root for Red Sox as a Yankee fan, but, you know, the kind of guy you want to root for. Um, you know, I see that the, uh, you know, the numbers – Swinging strike rate was only 9.5% last year. Um, that kind of worries me a little bit. Uh, he's never been a very high ground ball guy, uh, which in Fenway Park, Yankee Stadium, uh, you know, in Rogers Center, in, in Camden Yards, you, you want to keep the ball down because it gets in the air. It, it, it's going to be a problem. So that those are some of the things that just worry me. And then there's a health concern. Um, this year there's some numbers that I like, but there are some numbers that alarm me a little bit. Uh, a hard hit rate that is actually way up uh, from 32 last year to 38 this year. Um, that's one worry. And another concern that I have um, is I really don't believe he's going to be able to stay healthy throughout the year, and I think you're going to see an effect of the amount of use he had in October last year. I'll say in his defense, I did a study of this for BaseballHQ.com one time, and there, I didn't find any connection between guys having long runs in the playoffs and subsequent years. Uh, I think the bigger concern is that David Price has a regular season track record of missing a lot of time, and that should be a concern for sure. Uh, finally, in the National League, who's a Bane pitcher? Miles Michaelis. Uh, I think it's a good story. You know, coming back, I believe it was from the KBO, the Korean Baseball Organization, and you know, having a very solid year when you look at the uh, sort of classic numbers, 283 ERA last year, but a worrisome swinging strike rate of 9.6 last year is now 6.2%, which is really, really low. Um, and even last year, that 283 ERA had a 393 uh, Sierra, a skills indicated ERA. So I think this is a guy who is just not going to return his value. And you know, his strikeout per nine right now is under five. It is very hard to succeed in the major leagues uh, getting that, that few strikeouts and that few swings and misses. Yeah, not many strikeouts and of quite a bit too many home runs so far. Uh, this is one of those things that I'm curious. We talked earlier, uh, Glenn, about the uh, the acumen of the organization, and St. Louis has that reputation. They saw the one season of Miles Michaelis and said, this is a guy we're going to keep around for a while. And that should sort of work in his favor when we're thinking about how likely is he to recover from these sort of poor performances so far this year. But then you look at the numbers and you just say to yourself, boy, oh boy, if he's going to fix things, he's, he's got a lot of things he has to fix. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, you know, the other thing that sort of worries me a little bit is they, they move guys around so much. So, they want to get Jose Martinez in the lineup, which I get. They want to get Tyler O'Neill, who's now hurt, in the lineup, which I get. And they want, they're playing Carpenter at third base. Um, none of these, DeYoung at shortstop, a really good hitter, but not a fabulous shortstop. A guy who's not getting swings and misses is relying on his fielders. And they are not putting out, 
you know, what we used to call in Stratomatic, the, the one-fielders all around the board. And if they're not, uh, Marcus Stroman in Toronto, same sort of thing. I talked about that earlier as well. Uh, you know, you got to have guys who can pick it if you're going to ask a guy to get a lot of ground balls or put a lot of balls in play. Glenn Colton's Baines, uh, Carlos Correa of Houston, Chris Bryant of Chicago, David Price of Boston, Miles Michaelis of St. Louis. Uh, tell our listeners where they can hear more, read more from Glenn Colton. You can find uh, Rick Wolf and me every Tuesday night, 10 p.m., to midnight eastern on sirius xm fantasy sports radio that's sirius 210 or xm 87 catch my week that was column on fantasyalarm.com and you can also catch me on twitter at glenn colton one and uh, very special uh tuesday april 23rd coming up the first show of season eight of uh, colton the wolfman we'll have a new sponsor rt sports you can go over and check them out rtsports.com backslash colton uh, we're going to have a lot of cool contests and uh, let, let the fans play against uh, colton the wolfman and see how they do and you have a terrific uh, twitter feed as well and i appreciate that patrick because i also like to uh, check out your twitter feed especially when uh, the podcast drops doubly especially when you're in it Glenn, I knew this was going to be fun and interesting. It always is, and it was again. I really appreciate it, and we'll talk to you again during the season. You got it. Thank you, Patrick. Glenn Colton co-hosts the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and is a regular contributor to FantasyAlarm.com. When we come back, it's our weekly talk with Todd Zola. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. He's sitting on 714. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Henry Aaron is coming around third. His teammates are at home plate, and listen to this crowd. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say, Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Good to be back with you, PD. You know, one of the things I've been hearing a lot about in this early season is uh, questions about the baseball again. Uh, home runs are way up, and of course that's getting people to ask uh, whether the ball is juiced, to use the expression. Uh, first of all, you don't like the term juiced. Well, the reason, the reason I don't like the term juiced is at least to date there there has been a study it was it was earlier in the month but there was a study published on baseball prospectus that suggests that the wind drag is less on the balls and that that's helping them fly more and uh, it, you know this is just silly i mean it's it's my head i think of juiced and if you know i hear the balls juiced my 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 thought is okay they found out that the, that it's that it's more elastic that it's something internal of the ball the the internal ball that's just making it, the elasticity is increased. That's just the way my mind works, I suppose. But uh, I think juiced in general could be just, you know, the just a synonym with, you know, flies further, and that's that's fine. But uh, anyway, it's just kind of my my silly the way my mind. It's semantics. 
Uh, I looked at the study at Baseball Prospectus. It seems fairly convincing given how little uh, data there is from one week in, in, the, yeah. uh, in the season. But, of course, there's a lot of baseballs flying around in one week in a, in a baseball season, hundreds of games, hundreds of pitches, thousands of batted balls in play. So I, I think that there's some, some validity here. And I guess the question is, uh, you, you wrote about this in some detail at ESPN.com, and uh, how did your study of the study work? Yeah. Um, so basically, what the what the what the uh, what the what the baseball prospectus study showed was I kind of alluded to, alluded to before that the wind drag is is less on the balls, so they're able to travel further and it, somewhere between five and ten feet for a well hit fly ball. So instead of just listing ten or fifteen arbitrary names of, of batters that I think can take advantage or will take advantage of the juice ball if it exists. I set up some filters, and the the first two parts of the filter were that they hit a lot of fly balls. You know, if you if you don't hit a lot of fly balls, even if you you know you're going to get more homers, but it's two or three compared to six or seven. So that was the first. The second was contact. You know, you, you got to make you know obviously you got to put the ball in play. So those were my my first two filters, and I was 40% fly balls and less than 25% contact. But the third filter, I took advantage of some research. I believe you had my, you've had Mike Podhauser on in the past, Mike. And if not, he's been uh, he's a regular at the New York First Pitch Forums, and he discusses his research. Uh, he has discussed it in the past uh, from FanGraphs, where he has discovered there is a correlation between fly ball distance, not home run, but fly ball distance and home runs, home runs per plate appearance. It's a pretty strong correlation uh, using using the uh, correlation coefficient. It's around 0.8, which is pretty good for a study of this nature. So um, what I did was I took the fly ball distance from the past several years, lined them up against home run per plate appearances, and came up with sort of you know what 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 what's the sweet spot of a fly ball that if you hit and hit it another five or ten feet. You get you gain the most vintage. You 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 increase by the most number of homers, and it, I don't remember the exact number. Something like 418 to I'm sorry 318 to 329, something like that, something in in that range. So what I that was my third filter was players that last year hit fly balls in that range, hit over 40% fly balls, and fan less than 25% of the time. And I came up with, I think, 16 names or so. Some of them are injured, but, you know, that's a good thing because if they're injured, you can stash them away. But around 16 names of batters that I expect to outperform their home run projection proportionately more than, I mean, other hitters. Everybody should hit more home runs because the ball's going further. But some players should hit proportionately more homers. So I try to identify that subset. Well, this was also the subject of the uh, Tout Table um, online discussion that we have with all the Tout Wars participants, and you asked the question, uh, "What is the how real is the spike this year, and how does it going to affect fantasy baseball?" And I, along with others, said I thought that the beneficiaries were going to be guys who were kind of warning track power 
a little more of the time than it would be Giancarlo Stanton and Aaron Judge because mm-hmm. the difference is 5 to 10 feet, and 5 to 10 feet doesn't matter if you hit it 460 right. in the first place. It matters if you hit it 385 in the first place and it, you can get it over the fence. It was Justin Smoke was the big beneficiary that I remember from the last time this juice ball theory came up. But uh, in your study, give us a couple of names of guys that you think are, are going to be beneficiaries of this uh, increased aerodynamic nature of the baseball. Right. Uh, it's, several of these guys have already, you know, in my naming guys, you know, to show off that I got them right, or these are the guys that came out in the study. A guy like Jock Peterson uh, came out very high, hits a lot of fly balls, and he had that, as you suggest, warning per track power. I don't believe I discussed it in the piece, but if you, you know, if you get this increase in a big park, it should help you, and, and uh, that might help Peterson a bit. Um, Ismani Grandal, although that's, he should get more. He should have been projected for more in Milwaukee. He should get even more. But a couple of my favorites were Eddie Rosario and teammate Max Kepler uh, of the Twins, just because I think that they're, this is the time to get them, to trade for them. That's the purpose of this. You can't draft these guys now, right? So you try to trade for them. The, uh, the, twins, the twins' offense should heat up even more as the weather warms. It's still, you know, still a little bit cold there in Minnesota. And... The AL Central pitching is just terrible. So they're going to get some decent matchups. And when the ball warms up and the, the temperature warms up, the uh, you know all season long they're going to be facing some, some, some fairly weak pitching staffs. I really like these two guys. To, you know, if, they, if they get three or four or five more homers than we expected, the runs and RBIs increase too. So I think those are two really good targets. They're starting out all right, but they're not, I think I put it, they're not they don't have off limits numbers, so those are a couple of the uh, a couple of the guys, and a couple of the, you know you mentioned smoke he came up but he's he, he he falls into the category again, but he missed the strikeout cutoff. But of the three cutoffs, I think the you know the one you know if you can improve contact rate I think, or, or if if you notice an improvement in contact rate you can put him on your radar. So a couple names I like from there were you know smoke again, but Yohan Mankata came out there and you know not that you need me to tell you that he you know potential breakout just the prospect pedigree but it's it's always nice when you know data backs up intuition but uh glaber torres is another one that 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 if it wasn't for contact would fall into this range and he's at that age where would you be surprised if he improved his contact i wouldn't so you know it'd be tough to trade for glaber torres uh, you know, th- I'm not. You know, this is. It's one of those things where, um, you know, it's you see it all, advice all the time. Well, just you know, trade away. You know, Alex Bregman's on the list. Just trade for Alex Bregman, no problem. How are you going to get Alex Bregman from a team? Well, maybe you need to trade him an ace pitcher. Maybe you drafted two ace pitchers and you're lucky they're both healthy, and maybe you can afford to deal one. I don't know, but um, those are some of the names. Might be easier to uh, trade for a guy like Edwin Encarnacion, who's widely yeah. viewed as being on the downside of his career. He made your list, and he's off to a pretty good start. And he seems like the kind of guy that uh, you could really make a, a, an offer for without having to give up your your Max Scherzer or your Jacob Degrom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, again, we we I think we 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 giggle, we joke, we'll be on a forum on Twitter. We see you know advice all the time, and it's always to me it's a. Uh, it's 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 unrealistic advice that you know if if you're in a league where you can just trade your 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 hot starting pitcher for Alex Bregman, my advice to you is join a new league. 
Is there a possibility that some of these guys, until the until the dust settles, are going to be mispriced in daily formats? Yes, uh, I, I I believe that yes, I yes, absolutely. Um, because what you know, at least the way I look at it, I base everything off of a baseline expectation, and then I adjust um, based on the matchup. So if if um, if my base by next, you know, if the, if I should if my base bent, baseline, excuse me, baseline expectation is low, absolutely. Especially if you know we always adjust for the park, but if they're if you know on a daily basis, if the reason the ball's flying further is because of the wind, then if the, if you know if the wind is even a few mile an hour more than normal blowing out, and or it's a smaller park. I think that could give you an extra advantage. So, you know, it's all, it all has, you know, putting everything in context. Why is the ball, you know, flying more? And actually, if it's the wind, you know, this is, re- I mean, I don't call it next level, but if the wind's blowing in and there's less, and there's less resistance, maybe the ball isn't, you know, influenced as much by wind blowing in. I think that's kind of a contrarian DFS play where if it's, a, you know, five or 10 miles blowing in, I'm going to avoid this batter. Maybe you pick out a couple of guys, you know, a Reese Hoskins. You know, you're not going to trade for Reese Hoskins, but maybe you don't fade Reese Hoskins if the wind's blowing in because the ball is better able to uh, to navigate through the, the wind blowing in with less resistance. Yeah, to be clear, when I read the Baseball Prospectus article, they, were, they weren't talking about wind resistance so much as air resistance, and I think that okay. applies across the board. You know, they're just talking about the, the ease with which the ball travels through the air mass, whether it's moving or not, uh, much in the same way that an airplane flies by generating lift because of the relative aerodynamic forces that are at play. And I wonder also the amount of resistance the ball encounters in the air is a fundamental part of how much it curves, uh, how much it breaks, how much it moves, uh, you know, with these various measures that we have. Has anybody noticed or has anybody looked into whether the uh, decreased air resistance, if there is such a thing, in fact, and I tend to believe it is from the data that I saw that Robert Arthur amassed at Baseball Prospectus, could it be possible that we need to be uh, fading pitchers who rely uh, heavily on curves and sliders rather than fastballs with a lot of movement? Yeah. Now the the yeah, I, yes, um, I potentially. But the, the 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 other part about that is if the batter expects the ball to move a certain amount and it's not, it could you know the, they could end up misjudging where they're swinging too. So it could almost be like an accidental advantage for this sort of thing. I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm just kind of spitballing here. And this has to do with a piece that um, that former Baseball HQ author a long time ago, Al Melkier, wrote for The Athletic, where he talked about some of the conditions early on, specifically with Matthew Boyd, that his 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 the ball up on the zone wasn't dropping as much as other uh, as other pitches similar pitches and batters were swinging uh they expected it to fall more so they were swinging underneath it and popping it up so i think it can go both ways i would lean more towards your way though where especially because you know a mistake is even more of a mistake a, you know a hanging curveball really hangs in your situation and it's going slow enough that the batter can make the adjustment and knock it out of the yard. So I would think so. And I think this can be measured. 
uh, I, I, I'd have to see if my database gives enough of in- information as far as placement of pitches. I don't know, I, you know, you know, kind of confessing here. I don't know how to scrape the uh, the Statcast data or anything the 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 uh, the PitchFX data well enough to 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 find that out. There are probably people that can, but um, I I do think that could be the next uh, the corollary, not so much corollary, but the the companion piece with pitching would be to find pitchers that are less susceptible to the, you know, to the, to the influence of the ball. Yeah. And that's a ton of work. I, I know the data exists, but boy, you're, you're right. As far as compiling it without access, like the big league teams have to those databases, it's going to be tough. Uh, another thing that doesn't get talked about in these, in these discussions is the effect on other aspects of batting production, especially batting average. And uh, the reason it comes to mind is because you mentioned that Jay Bruce is a power type guy who could really benefit from the added power that the aerodynamic ball is providing, but he's got a very low batting average. And I wonder if in the long run, do we expect that a more speedy ball that gets out there faster maybe helps batting averages as well enough to make Jay Bruce a more attractive candidate than he would be if you expect him to, you know, be a Mendoza line hitter. Yeah, I suppose um, it, it might, I, I'd have to check to see if, if the reason, if, if it's, if it's, you know, if he's not hitting the ball hard and it's in the, he's getting extra homers, you know, based on balls, not hit very hard. I can see where the fly balls he's hitting that don't leave the yard are easily caught which could affect it. I think it, it has to sort of go on a on a player-by-player player basis and just sort of look at their individual uh, numbers, underlying metrics. I, I don't know for sure about, about a Jay Bruce. I also, I don't know if he came out on the list or not, he, what his strikeout rate is. But um, he's not going to, you know, regardless, you know, I, I do think that his, his batting average of ball and play. Okay, so he did, he did come up on it. I he is to me somebody that you could target just because with his average so low, even with all the homers, his uh, his fantasy manager may be more you know open to trading a Jay Bruce, but you know figuring that the power is going to come down. It's Seattle. It's a big park. Uh, that sort of thing, and you may be able to, you know, you're easier to trade for Jay Bruce and Edwin and Carcione than it is to trade for Reese Hoskins, who was also on the list. Or Alex Bregman, as you mentioned. Uh, guys right. like that, they're going to be hoarded. Uh, I just did a quick uh, back-of-the-napkin estimate. Uh, Jay Bruce is around 36 or 37% strikeout rate, and I don't know how that fit into your filters, but it's pretty high. Yeah, that's weird. I, I surprised, I'm surprised that it came out to be so high that I thought to me, I thought if, maybe when I did the piece, maybe he's striking out more lately. The piece at this point, when I crunched the data, it's, a, it's it's working on a week old, so maybe he's had a a rash of strikeouts this week. But or maybe I just mis misfiltered. I don't know. But um, I intuitive not so much intuitively, but my my memory was well says that he has a high strikeout rate. But he fits. If nothing else, he fits the fly ball, and he flits fits the. Um, or maybe it was strikeout rate last year, figuring that they that they nestled toward. You think you think since I did the research, I'd know, huh? But um, the the fly he 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 is a fly ball hitter, and and maybe it's you know it's it's helping to justify why he has so many home runs already. I don't know. He struck out twenty one percent of the time last year, so I, I probably use last year's last year's strikeout rate because this year's is a little too. 
little too fresh just to uh, identify the, uh, the for the filter. That's why I didn't use this year's fly ball distance so far too, because I wanted to know guys from last year, you know, where get a, a larger sample. And uh, this year, besides the, the the fly ball distance, this year has already been affected by the by the uh, by the ball. Well, I mentioned, uh, Todd, the uh, tout table is a discussion this week all about the uh, the um, ball and whether it's juiced and uh, the effect on, uh, if we assume that home runs are going to be up, how that affects our competitive uh, approach to our various leagues. Uh, what was the range of opinion amongst the 30 or so touts who offered an opinion? Yeah, there's some interesting, interesting opinions, and some of which... Uh, a lot of the, you know, some of the, the more common answers, this will be posted on TeltWars.com on Monday. Some of the people suggested that middle relievers are that much more important because, you know, flipping it to the other side of it where uh, you, you want to avoid the, the landmines of pitching. So these are where the, the middle relievers are just another reason to use middle relievers as opposed to not so much a two-start guy, but, a, you know, a mediocre one-start pitcher. It's a uh, look to the middle relievers, and it also sort of increases the, um, the, 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 the stolen bases, the corollary, not so much corollary, but the companion category, where you, if, if you feel that you are ahead in home runs or you have a couple of players that you expect to continue to hit more home runs and you're short on speed, perhaps you can deal some of these excess homers for steals. But the, the, the caveat there is if everybody has more homers, do you really have excess? So you have to make sure that you truly believe that you have the excess to deal for the stolen bases. So actually looking at Bruce, he's, he's, he has fanned a ton lately. I'm pretty sure I used this year's strikeout. So I think that when I did the when I actually did the numbers, he was he was under the cutoff. But he, he's had two, three strikeout games in the past week. And that probably put him over the put him under put him over the limit. Scott Pianowski, our mutual friend, had an interesting take, and it had to do with uh, uh, avoiding the the uh, low strikeout pitch to contact yeah. type guys. Uh, Miles Michaelis is having a tough start. Rick Porcello, uh, Kyle Hendricks, these kind of guys that because any contact has now got the potential to be really bad contact that that. We need to be a lot more cognizant of the kind of pitches we're running out there, um, especially in, I guess, daily moves leagues or in DFS. Yep. That that all becomes way more important than it was even a year ago. Yeah, so uh, along those lines, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a piece this week looking into the data they have access to. And if, if my filters are, you know, hitters that, that hit fly balls and don't strike out and hit fly balls with a certain distance – Sort of, you know, I'm trying to think of the, the, how to the corollary with, with with pitching, pitchers that strike out a lot of batters that don't give up fly balls, and the fly balls that they give up are a certain distance. Yeah, I'm going to try to find pitchers that are in that range to avoid them, and pitchers that are out of that range that will not be more susceptible to the fly ball. Something we should probably mention if we for referencing Robert Arthur's article was. He made it clear that it was one week's worth of data, and in, in, you know, if you do this over the full season, which he has, there's a lot of variance week to week. So it, you know, you you can't necessarily make the leap of faith that this is definitely true. It's 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 an educated guess. But he also pointed out that 
the level of the resistance was less than anything at all measured last year. So I think that's important. And I, a note that I saw yesterday, uh, th this is very interesting, I think, anyway. It's, it's somewhat circumstantial evidence, but I think it's, 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 a, it's a step above that. The minor leagues are using the Major League Baseball for the first time, and minor league, minor league home runs are up a ton. Now, there could be other variables, weather conditions, wind, etc., that, you know, if they influence the majors, they can influence the minors. But I do find it interesting that minor league home runs using the Major League Baseball have spiked this year. Um, so I, it, 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 to me, it's a, a step above circumstantial, but it, it definitely supports the increased flight of the baseball. I think it really does. Robert Arthur also pointed out when he was talking about pitches and how pitches have been affected. We've seen 5,000 or so at the time. He wrote them more than that now, which, uh, again, as I said earlier, you know, it looks like a small sample when you say it's after, uh, you know, one week or 10 days. It sounds like a relatively small amount. But when you're talking about the individual actions that take place on the field, it doesn't take very long for Major League Baseball to pile up really big amounts. Yeah, yeah, and like you said, he's compared it to other re other seasons, and the, to me, the other you know, the fact that the the re that the resistance was was less than any week measured last year is also very very telling. Yeah, on BaseballReference.com, it says there's just been slightly over twenty thousand plate appearances so far. About forty eight hundred of them have ended up in strikeouts. So if we presume, and eighteen hundred have ended up in walks. So that's what sixty six hundred or so. It means we've had thirteen thousand plus balls in play. That's a pretty big sample to judge. And some of them are on the ground. I get it. I get it. But uh, it seems like if Robert Arthur hasn't absolutely nailed this down, it's certainly something that we have to look at and go. I think this guy's onto something. Right, and I, as I pointed out in the piece too, and I think you know we mentioned Scott before. This is one of Scott's sort of uh, uh, you know crusades is the way the game is built nowadays. You cannot wait until the judge slams his gavel and decrees the ball is juiced. You have to you know you you have to be proactive and anticipate. You have to be prescient and assume that the limited data is right. I mean, picking up you're not going to be hurt picking up these guys. You can only be helped, so you have to be, a, you know, ahead of the curb or whatever you want to, you know, be early on this. You can't be reactionary. You have to be proactive. So, as I said in the piece, it's, you know, we're not, it's, it's, it's not definitive. However, there's easily enough evidence here that this is the time to act. Be aggressive. Be forward. Be uh, willing to use the data as they come in. And then try to make deals for some of these guys. As you said, Alex Bregman's not going anywhere. But Jay Bruce <laughs> might be. Uh, Edwin Encarnacion might be. You know, there's a lot of a sort of what we call buy-high opportunities. Uh, ordinarily, the mantra yeah. is, you know, sell high, buy low. But sometimes those buy-high guys aren't bad. Uh, Todd Zola, thanks a million for helping us out again this week. And we'll talk to you again in seven days' time. Absolutely. Good to have a good week, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, pitcher matchups, and master notes, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Two balls and two strikes on it. Here's the pitch on the way, a swing and a foul. Left field, way back, Blue Jays win it!
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the weekend pitcher matchups report and master notes. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer, Detroit outfielder Daz Cameron. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. 22-year-old Daz Cameron, the son of 17-year Major League vet Mike Cameron, is off to a fast start at AAA, literally. With two steals as first 50 at-bats for AAA Toledo in 2019, maybe it's only two stolen bases in 13 games at AAA, or maybe it's a sign of good things to come. In fact, Daz Cameron's ascent through the minor leagues has also been, well... Fast. Drafted by the Houston Astros in 2015, then traded to the Detroit Tigers as part of the package for Justin Verlander in 2017, Daz Cameron could be seen as a rising star in 2018, literally. Traversing through three levels of the minors in 2018, beginning with the Lakeland Tigers at single-A advanced, then matriculating to the double-A Erie Seawolves, followed by a full-blown promotion to triple-A Toledo in August, Daz Cameron finished a dazzling 2018 campaign as, well, what used to be called a rising star and now a fall star in the Arizona Fall League's Fall Stars game. The specifics? Daz Cameron batted a combined 264 through all three levels of the minors in 2018 with eight home runs and 24 steals. Did you catch the eight home runs? Well, not literally. According to the 2019 Minor League Baseball Analyst, Daz Cameron produced an elevated rate of hard contact through all three levels of the minors in 2018, and he possesses a level of raw power that projects to increase later on. But he strikes out a lot to the tune of 137 strikeouts in only 126 minor league games in 2018. That's why Daz Cameron, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. And if you saw Ed DeCaria's fascinating list of no names, do names, and whoa, remember him names, all of whom are currently projected to earn $0 or less, despite having decent skills, found in his April 12th research column on BaseballHQ.com, you will be able to use spy skills to see for yourself why Daz Cameron might provide an infinite return in 2019. After all, we at BaseballHQ.com see Daz Cameron as an athletic outfielder who saw exponential growth on both sides of the ball in 2018. Should that trend continue in 2019, look for him to arrive in Detroit sooner rather than later, meaning he should arrive on your team sooner rather than later as well. So go ahead and dazzle your friends and league mates by adding Detroit center fielder Daz Cameron as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for weekend pitcher matchups. And here with a scan of Boston left-hander David Price in Tampa to face the Rays right-hander Tyler Glasnow on Sunday is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. 
Whether we call it the marquee matchup or the Sunday showcase, the only place where two starting pitchers with positive matchup ratings lock horns this weekend is in Tampa. Boston's rejuvenated left-hander David Price brings in a matchup rating of 115 to face off against Ray's right-handed rising star, Tyler Glasnow. Glasnow has a matchup rating of 120. The 2018 World Series champion Red Sox are off to a disappointingly slow start this season. Their American League worst record of 6-13 places them at the bottom of the East Division. The Beantown boys have allowed 42 more runs than they've scored. The Rays lead that AL East division with a best record in Major League Baseball at 14-4. They've scored 47 more runs than they've allowed. In 19 innings over his first three games started this year, the 33-year-old Price is posting the second-best BPV of his career at 140. Price's career-low whip of 095 is aided by a career-low hit rate of 26%, but his career second-best control rate of 1.4 walks per nine is contributing as well. And that control rate is fully supported by Price's first pitch strike rate of 66% and career-high swinging strike rate of 14%. Small sample size caveats apply, of course, and some regression may be on the way for Price. His ground ball rate is a career-low 30%, his fly ball rate is a career-high 50%, and his home runs per nine is a career-worst 1.4. The 25-year-old Glass now received an upside projection of 200 strikeouts and a 3.00 ERA from Stephen Nickrand in our 2019 Baseball Forecaster. Over 24 innings pitched in four games started this season, Glass now is struck out 24 and has an expected ERA of 3.00. The big story for the 6'8 Glass now is his career-best control rate of 1.1 walks per nine innings pitched. His previous best is last season's 4.3, which was an improvement over his first half season's 6.4 in 2017. Again, small sample size caveats apply, but Glasnow's first pitch strike rate of 67% certainly supports his newfound control rate for now. Just as the matchup ratings slightly favor Glasnow 120 to 115, Glasnow's career high BPV of 158 also tops Price's BPV of 140. Look for a good battle between Glasnow and Price this Sunday in Tampa, with Glasnow earning a slight edge. Our Sunday surprise is 28-year-old left-hander Matt Boyd. Boyd has the third-best matchup rating of the weekend at 2.30. The visiting Chicago White Sox counter with 25-year-old right-hander Rinaldo Lopez, who has a matchup rating of minus 088. That's a matchup differential of 318 in favor of Boyd. The Tigers have been as surprising as the Red Sox have been disappointing. Detroit is all even at 9-9, good for third place in the American League Central, just two games behind the division-leading Cleveland Indians. Detroit has allowed 10 more runs than it's scored, and Chicago has allowed 23 more runs than it's scored. The White Sox are 7-11 in the American League Central division that they share with the Tigers, and Chicago is two games behind Detroit. A negative matchup rating is not the only important number below zero for Lopez. His BPV thus far is minus 27. In his first full season last year, Lopez had a BPV of 44. In 19 innings pitched over four games started this season, Lopez has struck out 17. He's suffering from a hit rate and strand rate double whammy of 35% and 65%. And he's had gopheritis to the tune of 3.3 home runs per nine and a 19% home run per fly ball rate. But he's making some of his own bad luck too. His velocity is down nearly 2 miles per hour, his control rate is 6.5 walks per 9, his first pitch strike rate is only 58%, and his swinging strike rate is just 9%.
Three of his four starts have been PQS disaster ones. Boyd is set to make his 90th career start, coming into it with a career-best whip of 111, despite a hit rate of 37%. Boyd's expected ERA is 2.73, nearly two runs below his 2018 expected ERA of 4.55. In 24 innings pitched over four games started, Boyd has struck out a stunning 36 batters. The credit goes to his stellar swinging strike rate of 17%. Small sample size caveats apply again, though, as Boyd's home run per fly ball ratio of 5% and home run per nine of 0.4 are likely unsustainable. But three of his four starts have been PQS dominant, and Boyd's career-high BPV of 188 is better than many closers. He has every advantage this weekend. The BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool gives you an eight-day scan of what to expect from each starter every day. Use it to make informed choices for your team this season. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our weekend pitcher matchups report here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about some early results in my 2019 pitcher net pro research. Back in 2017, I came up with a new metric for assessing players. I called it Positive Relative Outcomes, which had the acronym PRO, but I changed it to Percentage Ratio Outcomes, also PRO, to avoid associations with my relatives. You can go back for the details in early examples in 2017's Baseball HQ archive. By any name, the idea was to calculate the percentages of positive and negative outcomes of each plate appearance or batter faced. To be specific, for pitchers, adjusted batters faced, which is total batters minus bunts and catcher interference. If you haven't yet committed all of this to memory, along with how to extrapolate earned runs from ERA and innings, and how much to tip your barista, Positive outcomes for pitchers, which are negative for hitters, are soft and medium hit grounders and flies, infield pop-ups and strikeouts. And negative outcomes for pitchers, positive for hitters, are hard hit grounders and fly balls, all line drives, walks, and hit by pitches. The work uses hardness of hit measures from Baseball Info Solutions. The median score for good outcomes among starting pitchers in 2017, which looked at pitchers from 2016's full season, was around 63%. The elite scores were at 67% and up, the bottom scores 58% and below. Clayton Kershaw had 74% good outcomes, which was very, very good. The median score for bad outcomes around 38%, with elite scores down around the low to mid-30s and the worst pitcher performances 41% bad or higher. Kershaw was at 28% bad outcomes, which was also very, very good. To get a net pro result, you just subtract the percentage of bad outcomes from the percentage of good outcomes. After 2016, for example, the top quintile of starting pitchers was plus 29 percentage points or higher, and the best again was Kershaw at plus 46. I thought it might be interesting to look at this year's starting pitchers using the same technique, so I did, using Baseball Information Solutions data from games through Wednesday, April 17th. This might seem premature, but the 137 starting pitchers in the study had at least two starts and 50 adjusted batters faced. Some of them were over 100. So far this year, the median good and bad outcomes percentage split has been 59% good, 41% bad, with a median net pro score of plus 18. 
that's a little narrower than it was a few years ago. The top quintile of 26 starters had net pro scores of plus 30 points or higher, led by reigning AL Cy Young holder and toe stubber Blake Snell, who has a remarkable 77.5% good outcomes and just 22.5% bad for a Kershaw-esque net pro of plus 55. Of course, that broken toe might affect that. Snell's ticket has been a ton of strikeouts, 40% of adjusted batters faced, and a ton of soft contact, 34%, plus a useful 3.4% infield fly. Other names in the elite won't surprise you or anyone. The top quintile includes Luis Castillo at plus 40, Noah Syndergaard at plus 39, Max Scherzer at plus 35, Jose Barrios plus 33, and Garrett Cole at plus 30. Okay, maybe Castillo's a bit of a surprise, but you get the point. Some of the names in the elite quintile do come as something of a surprise. Like John Means, he's plus 42 pitching for Baltimore. And the key here, this guy is getting a lot of worm killers. Over 32% of his battles with hitters have ended in soft or medium hit grounders, and another 17% have been medium hit fly balls, also known as cans of corn. That's 49% easy outs, best among all the starters, and making his relatively low 22% strikeout percentage a little easier to bear. Tyler Glasnow, plus 39 for Tampa, was a touts darling before this season, but nobody thought this was coming. Glasnow's K percentage is actually a little off from past seasons, but his walk rate has just disappeared with a 3.3% rate that is among the league leaders. Add in 52% combined soft and medium hit grounders and fly balls, and Glasnow could be one of those guys who answers the preseason question, which pitcher outside the top 15 ADPs will finish inside the top 15 when 2019 is over. Ivan Nova, plus 34 for the White Sox, has 528-130 decimals and a low 17% strikeout rate, but he has the sixth highest medium hit ground ball rate among the starters at 23%, and his combined 48% soft and medium hit ground balls and fly balls is third among starters. He's also being frugal with the hard hit grounders and fly balls, less than 10% of total adjusted batters faced. Merrill Kelly at plus 33 in Arizona has come out of nowhere, or more precisely the Korean leagues, to grab a slot in Arizona. Like Nova, he is unimpressive decimals at 591-135, but his elite net pro is built on 44% combined easy contact and a low 4% walk rate. And Yusei Kikuchi, plus 30 Seattle, we talked about him earlier. He has a nice whip of 111, but a so-so 4 ERA in his first year in Major League Baseball. True to his form, he has not been a source of strikeouts, with 20 whiffs in 27 and two-thirds innings, not the stuff fantasy dreams are made of. But he is getting a lot of ground balls, 32% of his adjusted batters faced, of which three-quarters have been soft and medium hit. He also has two easy fly balls for every hard hit fly ball. Going to the other end, in the last quintile of the net pro spectrum, we find a hodgepodge of 26 starters with net pro scores under plus 8. Some of them are the sorts of starters whose track record suggest they will be comfortable in this company. Shelby Miller at minus 25 is the worst in MLB with a startling 5% strikeout rate. Mike Fires and Kyle Gibson are both plus six and have disappointed owners, and Marco Estrada plus six has long tantalized with his huge infield fly rate, but his accompanying hard-hit howitzer shells have left a scarred battlefield pocked with craters of ERA and whip. 
but some of the non-elite bunch are a little surprising. Matt Strom, minus 22 in San Diego, was a tout darling before the season as well, but the season so far has blown up in his face. Thus far, Strom has actually surrendered more hard-hit grounders and fly balls, 29%, than combined soft and medium-hit grounders and fly balls at 20%. His 14% K rate is perilously close to a 9% walk rate. The touts thought his relief pitching skill base would transfer well to the rotation, but maybe not. John Lester's minus nine in Chicago, and like Strom, has given up more hard grounders and flies than soft and medium grounders and flies, and a ton of line drives. 20% of adjusted batters faced, half again above the SP median of 13%. He's also walking 10% of his hitters. He's now on the IL with what was called a hamstring injury, but the signs at least suggest some other kinds of injury trouble. Another preseason tout darling was Corbin Burns. He's just plus one in Milwaukee, also in the more hard contact club with Strom and Lester. And he adds a 9% walk rate into his mix, so he's full value for his 1070 215 decimals. What's particularly troubling with Burns is his fly ball mix. He's giving up three times as many hard hit flies as soft and medium hit flies. And it's those hard hit flies in cozy Miller Park that have led to his league worst 11 homers allowed. The jury was out this year on Hugh Darvish. He's plus one in Chicago, but he needs to throw himself on the mercy of the court with an 18% walk rate. And if you add his hit by pitches, 2%, his free passes are almost equal to his strikeouts at 22%. Loss of control is often a marker for elbow trouble, and as we know, Darvish had Tommy John surgery in 2015, and last year he had a debridement, which sounds like a fancy word for a vagus annulment, but is actually an arthroscopic procedure. It was described in the abstract of a research paper at the National Center for Biotechnology Information as osteophytes removal, loose bodies removal, and fenestration of the olecranon fossa. Fenestration? According to two different online dictionaries, that's the arrangement of windows and doors on the elevations of a building. So either fantasy owners have to worry that Darvish is a significant elbow re-injury risk or that they might be looking at some significant reno costs. We'll see if the Cubs contact Dr. Elatrash or the Property Brothers. One last piece of advice in all of this, it's still early and it might take higher batter's face levels for pitchers' true skills to level out. So don't run out and trade you Darvish right away unless you can get a decent fixer-upper, maybe a little closer to downtown. Also, be cautious about taking on relatively unknown commodities like John Means. Focus on your due diligence process, and don't just throw a dart and be proud of yourself if it happens to hit the bullseye. In fantasy baseball, as in life, ends don't justify means. There's a full list of the SP Pro outcomes at BaseballHQ.com for subscribers only. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Oh, and that pitcher who had three immaculate innings? Well, like Lefty Grove and Randy Johnson, he was a left-hander and a great one. The Dodgers' immortal Sandy Koufax had three nine-pitch, three-strikeout innings, more than any other pitcher in big league history. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 19th. 
Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 18 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Friday edition of the show, Howard Bender and Glenn Colton from Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and Fantasy Alarm. Howard is a really tough competitor. Glenn Colton is so well-known with his partner, Rick Wolf, and they're both tremendous guests. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, and our weekend pitcher matchups report was presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast or iTunes, wherever you get your pods leave baseball hq radio a good review and a rating really does help us find new listeners and that helps us keep the podcast going thanks again for listening we'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners it is baseball hq radio and so long Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.